This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Monday morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt is back, finally, after spring break. Good to be with you, folks. Holy cow. And I didn't even have to go through Delta Airlines, which apparently was upside down for five days. Yeah, they couldn't figure out how to recoup, I guess, from the uh, storms. You have one storm, and then all your pilots still need sleep, and that messed up. Right. It was the pilot schedules, apparently, that hmm. caused the biggest problem. But they, they didn't necessarily tell anybody that until you were waiting for two days. Have you seen the movie Sully? Yeah. Yeah, your pilots need plenty of sleep. Yeah, it's a great point. That was one of the questions I remember they asking him, like, how much sleep did you get? Eight hours, fully rested. Plenty of sleep. Right, great. He landed an airplane on the water. Okay. So, yeah, pilots need to sleep. Yeah, it's a, it's a big deal. I think, honestly, I think everybody needs to sleep. Well, yeah. But pilots. Yeah. Pe- people driving things. Yeah. Bus drivers, semi-trucks. Yeah. Jeff's Matt sleeping. driving his car. Jeff's been sick uh, while I was gone, apparently. Little uh, bug. So he's now just sleeping it off. Well, it's good. It was easy, huh? It's fun driving the bus. Don't you think, Jeffrey? Uh, yeah. You, were you hoping for more from that? No, oh, that's okay. pretty much it. so, uh, That's all I expected right there. Um, it's Golfer's Day, by the way. Sergio Garcia wins the Masters. Is that money or is that somebody getting flogged? I think that's disc golf. Oh, that's, yeah. Not a great sound for golfing. Sergio kind of choked. As he normally does? Yeah. He had that opportunity with the uh, first attempt at a putt on 18. Yeah. Missed it by that much? That much. And sort of the, is it Justin Rose? Yeah, was it? Did I have that? Like, you always forget the guy, the number yeah. two guy. You always forget you that You meant number yeah, two. Justin Rose. They both missed putts that could have either you know, pushed the playoff sealed the or deal. sealed it, and then they had to go to a playoff hole, and then Justin Rose fell apart by, uh, I mean, you're, it's all this great, theater you're building yeah. up and then yeah. justin rose just puts it into a tree like, oh, dude it's like me great job have you ever bet on golf no never well because i'm going to lose the bet i mean i'm not dumb we've talked about the uh not a dumb better the fantasy sport sort of betting yeah how you we guys had, got we, into that. We had some people – well, we've had guests on talking about it. Is it gambling? Is it fantasy sports? They have golf. You now can do golf. the same thing you do with football. They do NASCAR racing. You wow. can just pick your, your favorite racers. And, really? Yeah. Weird. Ping pong? They, maybe. Maybe they expand <laughs> the, the brand. and uh, It's like FanDuel and then whatever the other one was. But, yeah, they you you know, every day you can go in and bet on your favorite NASCAR drivers. It's that – I don't know. By the way, you had an opportunity to win a wager. It, I, it could have been the easiest win in your no, career. No, I, I just heard about this. So tell me the bet because I, I, I wish I could have made that happen. So on Thursday's show, we were speaking with Spencer and Jason. Yeah. And I think maybe I was just not feeling well and wanting you to be back. Yeah. Maybe I was really missing you. Maybe you just missed me. Um, and I said, if Matt comes to the show tomorrow, I will shave my head. Well, how did you know that I wasn't just even – if I had just been in town, maybe I was passing through. I could have caused some major turmoil for you. Well, you actually weren't where I thought you were. 
No, I thought I was, you were in St. George. No, I was in. I was in. I was that day. I was in on the way to Vegas. I thought I knew you, <laughs> and I listened to the show. You did a wonderful job, but I'm so glad I had the break. Hacking and wheezing. Yeah, those were great guests. Wheezy hacking is hard to get on the show. Oh yeah, and then they're hard to keep quiet once they start their deal. We got a lot to talk about. Joe Cannon will be on the show today, which means it's uh, we're going to be talking politics. He's our Washington insider. Joe in the know, we call him. We'll go. Uh, we'll call him, find out what, what's his take on. Uh, he's got a lot of news. Syria, Gorsuch was passed through. Uh, Kushner and Bannon fighting like relatives almost. Allegedly. Yeah. But Ryan's previous not going to lose his job. Allegedly. He's now mediating the fight between Kushner and Bannon. What do we hear? Yeah. All this stuff comes from groups of sources. Yeah. Well, that's the only way to get information. Right. Because who do you believe anymore? Mm. So we'll do all that fun, plus, of course, celebrating Golfer's Day. <laughs> golf. Uh, Breaking things. Golf. This is the day that you get out and you start hitting the links. You got to get out there and start golfing today we'll take the whole team no one's ever here i know just to be clear you want a high score right the person with the highest score wins yeah go with it go with it and then whoever loses buys dinner Mm. so you're going to want to run that score up as high as you can jeffrey all right but if i lose i'm taking you to blilly's i love blilly's baby black blades those are so good Okay, Terry, hit us with the news. What's going on around the rest of the country we should be worrying about? Neil Gorsuch, the next U.S. Supreme Court Justice, will be sworn in privately by Chief Justice John Roberts today at the Supreme Court at 9 a.m. Justice Anthony Kennedy will do a public ceremonial swearing in of the 101st Associate Justice at the White House at 11 a.m. So there's two signing in, there's two ceremonies. That's cool. That'll be fun. I love a good ceremony. Is that just in case they do one wrong? Yeah, they get in a case backup? they missed, yeah. U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations Nikki Haley on Sunday declared that the administration does not see peace and stability in Syria with the Syrian President Bashar al-Assad still in power. In no way do we look at peace happening in that area with Iranian influence. In no way do we see peace in that area with Russian covering up for Assad. In no way do we see peace in that area with Assad as the head of the Syrian government. And we have to make sure that we're pushing that process. The political solution has to come together for the good of the people of Syria. Haley noted that the United States' first priority is still to defeat ISIS, but there, there, there could be multiple priorities. There seemed to be a conflict of, of uh, the direction for the White House when Secretary of State Rex Tillerson said on another Sunday show that the focus of the administration is on ISIS and not on regime change in Syria. So we don't know really what the target is of yeah. the administration since they... Hey, well, we hit one target. Why are we already thinking of... Isn't the Secretary of State the boss of the ambassadors? You'd think so, yeah. Don't they work for... Basically, yeah. they... they got, they're under his department, I believe. So when they have two different messages that go out, it's kind of <laughs> confusing. By the way, 23 of the 59 cruise missiles launched at Syria hit their targets. How many? 23 of 59. 60 missiles were actually launched. One of them failed to ignite and fell in the ocean. Holy cow, a yeah. dud. They had a dud. So 23-59, that's a 389 batting average, so all-star numbers for baseball. I don't, I don't know if we need sub-50% from our missiles, but, you know. You'd think, you'd, you'd think they'd be more accurate than that. You'd think. Wow. 
But they, they think uh, someone. I heard someone speculating that these these tomahawks were from uh, their older models. So their their yeah. their technology that does the map of Earth flying so really low uh-huh. might not account for the different type of uh, terrain in that just area of the world. Getting rid of the old stuff. It's like when mom throws together that yeah. that meatloaf surprise. They're meal. emptying the backstock of uh, million dollar <laughs> cruise missiles. That's the other thing. They cost a million at a time. So. Wow. Uh, Russia, Iran, and Hezbollah issued a joint statement against the U.S. strike, warning our government against future attacks. Okay, yeah. So, yeah. Okay, we'll, well see. Well, future attacks, maybe it doesn't matter if we're not hitting the target. In other news, the U.S. has sent warships into the Korean Peninsula as a show of force against North Korea, which is continuing to develop its weapons program. The number one threat in this region continues to be North Korea due to its reckless, irresponsible, and destabilizing programs of missile tests and pursuant of nuclear weapon capabilities, says U.S. Pacific Command spokesman David Benjamin. Wow. Uh, President Trump has said the U.S. is prepared to act unilaterally in order to counter the growing threat. Hmm. So, things to come. Uh, finally, two people were recommended for post-exposure rabies treatment after a consumer in Florida reportedly found a dead bat in a package of salad mix. The Centers of Disease of, uh, for uh, Disease, disease uh. Control and Prevention said. So you open your salad mix. Uh, yeah. There's a bat. So what protein do you want on your salad, ma'am? The bat was sent to the CDC after it was found on the, uh, they give the brand name, but it doesn't really matter. It's just a, you go to the grocery store, your, uh. your pre-made salad mix. The deteriorated condition of the bat did not allow for the CDC to definitively rule out rabies. So the the two people that ate from the salad mix had to get uh, their shots, ugh. but they're saying there's probably no exposure, no problem. They're just being safe. But wait, how does the how does the brand name not matter? I don't <laughs> want to eat bat just salad. Shake the salad up. See if there's anything weird in there when you mm, buy it. It's Dracula. Yeah, it's a great brand. Uh, who put this bat in my salad? <laughs> That's crazy, man. You're eating a salad. See, this is why I don't eat salads. You don't eat a salad. I bet it's a fruit bat. I'll bet you bucks. Was it a fruit salad? I just said a salad mix. Mm-hmm. One of those fresh spring mixes. Yeah. So it was a bat salad. Was it? Uh, did it have like a a ranch guano dressing? Mm. <laughs> I love me the ranch guano dressing. Uh, did, is it part of the bat belt? Is this does, does Batman keep a bat salad on his bat belt? This is great. Yeah, the old bat salad. What are you going to have? So what do you think? The 23 of 59 missiles pretty bad. hit their target. Well, is it the aim or is it the missile? I'm not sure. And then afterwards, they said within a couple hours, they're, you know, airplanes are flying and taking yeah. off from the airfield because they didn't actually take out the airstrip. But then President Trump tweeted out that we could have taken out the airstrip, but they could have taken they could have just repaved the thing within a couple hours, and it wouldn't have been it wouldn't have meant anything. What? Like you drop a thousand pound bomb because they said there's thousand yeah, pound warheads. thousand pound bombs going to create a, a thousand hole. pound crater. So I don't know how that tracks. They said that really thick asphalt on those uh, runways there in Syria. Oh. I thought. I thought we killed it. I thought we were 59 for 59. No, Life no, no, was no. great. They took out a cafeteria, a couple hangars. There's questionability on whether those airplanes were new or like old ones that were being repaired. So what's the value of the targets? We're not sure. It might well, have been Sloppy yeah. Joe Day at the cafeteria. Bruh. Yeah. 
Now I'm going to have to have a bat salad. The, the Russians were using the airbase as a helicopter staging point, yeah. so they got all the he- Russian helicopters out of the way. Okay, that's good. So eh, I'm not sure what the value yeah. of all that is, but it's, you know, we had a 389 batting average. Which really is not bad. No, that's, that's all-star level numbers. Yeah. Boy, I thought it was. I thought we were hitting better than that, though. I hope they got rid of all the bad missiles. No, but apparently there's like three thousand of them. Uh, we we haven't had to use a lot of cruise, cruise missiles over the last couple of days. Well, I think now we know what's going to happen in Syria next week. We gotta, <laughs> we gotta liquidate these bad yeah. missiles. Oh, brother! Just when you thought it was good, I just I thought it was odd. They kept saying there's fifty nine missiles. Why fifty nine? Yeah, that sixtieth one. It seems like an, <laughs> it's like the, right du- the, the, the dud firework on the Fourth yeah. of July. Just seemed like an odd number, fifty nine. Um, I spent the entire week with my children. Well, about nine days with my children and all of their friends. It was fun. It was really fun. Do you Lots take? Of, do you take the friends? Yeah, we. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. Like you drive them? Or? Yeah, we drove some of them down, and then. Some of them stayed at our house. It was weird because then all of a sudden they'd all be gone and they'd all sleep over somewhere else. Hmm. So it was – I felt like an empty nester at times. My wife and I just sat and watched shows. I'll have to fill you guys in later on what we watched. Oh, nice. Incredible. We we worked. Yeah. For the heard, entire no, week. I listened to a couple times. I, in fact, I was driving uh, my son with a bunch of friends somewhere and turned the show on and we all laughed. At you guys. Really? I mean, laughed at us in a good way. We laughed with you. You Mm. didn't didn't turn it on and go, oh, wait a second. I'm not here. I'm not at work. They all thought, because many people believe Jeff and I sound alike. Yeah, yeah, you do. Well, we actually played quite a few of your interviews. Yeah. I thought that was. I think that's the only, those are the only times you actually tuned in to listen. No, I, I listened to you, and then I sat there and I thought, my kids are like, Dad, he sounds just like you. Why would you hire someone that sounds just like you? I said for this very moment when I'm not in town. I'm not there, but it sounds like it. But everyone thinks didn't, I'm in town. Didn't they also say he sounds exactly like you, but maybe a little funnier? And then that's when they you got in say, the car and headed back to the show? They did say you sounded funny, yes. Hmm. They did say that. More nasally, they said. Daddy sounds a little nasally. Well, as I said, I did wow. have a great interview with Hacking and Wheezing. Oh, great. Oh, the great law firm. That, weren't they the law firm that yes. blew up the Oscars? Yeah. Yeah. Hacking they, they won't. They won't be at the next one, let's just say. Mm. That's too bad. going to miss them. Uh, it's so good to be back. It really is. And we've got a lot of exciting uh, topics ahead this uh, show. Three hours, folks. Helping you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. We'll be back with Joe Cannon. Joe in the know. Try to understand what we can about... Uh, What's going on in Washington? Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, good times uh, are here again. Joe Cannon joins us. Joe is our Washington insider, we call him. He's Joe in the know. He just has spent a lot of time in his life uh, in the know, meeting people, working with people in Washington. He has a wonderful history as chairman of the Utah Republican Party, also was a candidate for U.S. Senate and served in the EPA, uh, the Environmental Protection Agency, under the Reagan administration. He was also 
an, an editor of the Deseret News. And uh, we just like to have him on the show to pick his brain. Joe Cannon, thanks for being with us, my friend. Hey Matt, thanks for having me. Good to good to have you, man. Alive. Uh, I was off for the week, but a lot of news came out of D.C. Uh, let's start with Gorsuch. He's he's official. He's going to be sworn in today. Yeah, he's going to be sworn in today twice. It turns out. But, yeah, what's that about? Hey, hang on, but we have to do two quick notes first. What? It's like enormously like, the really important stuff in life. Sergio Garcia, yeah, seventy four tries finally wins a major event on the day that would have been the 60th birthday of Seve Ballesteros, oh, cool. who is also a Spaniard who won, and he got a nice congratulations note from Jose Maria Lothabal, and also two-time winner. So you have three Spaniards who've won the Masters, but this is particularly sweet for Garcia. He seems like a cool okay. guy. He seems oh, yeah. fun. and Yeah. Yeah. What's the other good the news? Other, the other important thing is is that 70 years ago today, Branch Rickey brought um, Jackie Robinson to the Dodgers. Now, we don't <laughs> want to spend more time on this, but that's a one, among the many reasons to love the Dodgers. Absolutely. That's one of the big ones. And everybody should see the movie 42. If you want to cry and relate to baseball and Jackie Robinson, see the movie 42. That was okay. how many years ago? 70? 70 years ago today. Holy um, cow. Yeah. That's they really bought good. the contract from a from a minor league team. But, yeah, that's what, that, that's what led to Jackie Robinson playing in the majors. Great history, Joe. If we ever want to know a history of the L.A. Dodgers, you got to look up Joe Cannon. Well, plenty of people know, would know way more, but it's a great team to that's root, great. root for. That's great, Even though Joe. They're having a, me- a mediocre start here. Yeah, they'll they'll pick it up. They'll pick it up. Hey, uh, so, so what's what do you think? I mean, really, when you look at it, President Trump's biggest, you know, success or sign of success so far in his first 70 whatever days it is now is this Gorsuch nomination. It's gone through. Yeah. It, and there's a, there's a you know, like with all these stories, there's a huge backstory. But, you know, everyone kind of always assumed that the nuclear option was going to be exercised. Uh, but that wasn't always clear. And in fact, even in, even there were two really interesting articles. We'll go through the whole thing. But uh, in uh, Politico and the Weekly Standard, they give the backstory of the nuclear option and what Schumer was thinking and what um, uh, uh, oh Mitch McConnell was thinking. It was really it's a very interesting backstory. But it was it wasn't really nip and tuck. But there were plenty of senators on both sides who did not want to go nuclear. Ah. But but at the end, because of just a lot of mistrust with each other and feeling like it was inevitable anyway, and the Republicans deciding, look, if they're, if they're going to filibuster, they, the Democrats, are going to filibuster a guy like Justice Gorsuch, then there's no one they won't filibuster. And so what the heck, let's just go nuclear. So even within the Republican caucus, you had a few uh, people who were very nervous and anxious about it, but they all came together at the end. And um, and went nuclear. Boy, there's a lot of pressure. I mean, because if you really wanted to vote, if you were a Democrat and really just thought, okay, Gorsuch isn't the place where we do this, you still have to toe the line of your party. Right, and it's very tough, as we've talked already on the program a few times. You've got you know ten Democrat senators who are up, or nine or ten who are up for reelection this in 2018, who are in states that uh, Trump took. 
for the, mm. so the so-called red state Democrats. And in fact, three of them did end up voting yeah. for Gorsuch. Did you uh, think there would be more? I mean, it seems like it seems like if there was a lot of pressure being in a possible Trump state that you'd you'd want to turn. But only three turns. The only, the only other one I thought might have been possible was Claire McCaskill from Missouri. But some of the other red state Democrats really are liberals. So you're, you're not going to get um, – is it Strickland? Uh, anyway, I'm forgetting the right. guy. Uh, I think it's Strickland from Ohio. Uh, he's not going to vote, even though he's in a state in – in a red state. He, he's not going to – he wouldn't have come over. Like I guess in my view, the only possible one would have been McCaskill from uh, yeah. from Missouri. But the other three, I think, were pretty predictable. I mean, they're really a they're in really red states. B they're moderate anyway. You know, they're not they're not uh, on the left edge of their party. So is but is I think the interesting. Thing, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, is Gorsuch more conservative than Scalia? Well, his. Mostly like Scalia, uh, there have been you know, lots of analyses on where he is on different issues, and the answer really is he's probably he's well not probably he's a lot like Scalia in his decisions, but they differ on a few subtleties, and, and that'll become apparent. The real question is what is his role on the court right now? So he's getting sworn in today. And uh, so he's going to go to work. And so what does that mean for the, the rest? So the court ends its term in late June. Very rarely they go into July, but basically they're, they're finished by June. So they've already heard a lot of cases. And so I think just for the listeners' sake, I mean, the, the two places where Gorsuch will make his uh, presence known is cases that have been agreed, the, the, the court has agreed to hear, but haven't been heard. So the oral arguments coming up in a number of cases, mm. some of which are pretty significant, including a very big uh, religious liberty case. Then there are a set of cases. As, so, you, you know, the Supreme Court doesn't have to hear, except in a vanishingly small area, which doesn't make any difference here. They don't have to hear cases. You You basically apply to the Supreme Court to have your case heard. And uh, that, and what, what happens is they get all these cases submitted. Every week, the justices sit down and they decide which cases they will hear. And it takes four votes to hear a case. Huh. And there, but there are plenty of cases that are sitting on their desk right now right. that they haven't decided what to do on, including some really significant uh, cases. And so now Gorsuch will be in that mix deciding what cases will be heard. So that's one area he'll be making his, his uh, presence known this week. They'll, they'll have a conference, I think, on Thursday, and, and they'll, they'll look at which cases to consider. And some of those, including a case that pits uh, First Amendment religious liberty against gay rights as uh, one of the cases they could decide to hear. But another case that they've already decided to hear but hasn't been argued yet involves uh, the relationship between state funding. Don't want to really get into the details here, but but it's it's a case with a long history, uh, not just in, the, in recent years of religious liberty, but going back to anti-Catholic laws uh, that prohibited any kind of um, 
any kind of government aid going to a parochial school. Oh, wow. Even even in in this case, for example, the, there's a, a, a program, I think it's in Missouri, but that, that uh, would uh, have a safer uh, playgrounds, kind of some rubberized substance, and, it's, and there's a, 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 a law that grants schools that, including, I think, some private schools, but not religious schools cannot take advantage of that. And anyway, that case has worked its way to the Supreme Court, and that is yet to be argued. So Gorsuch will play a role on that. So so even though he's, the court is mostly through the session, he will his his presence will be felt very quickly. Well and he's he's also been a sitting judge, right, for ten years anyway. So he he knows the process. He understands the system. It sounds like I mean, I don't know how much of a rookie you are, but and it's got to be intimidating to go sit down with these justices that you revere, and one of which he served with, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is it's kind of a sweet. Uh, I don't. It's not irony. Just a sweet circumstance that this is the first time in history a justice has been named to clerk for a sitting justice. That's great. So a justice and and their clerk are now on the court together. That's powerful. Serving together. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Is um. I guess in the end, there may be – I mean, he really, with with some of these cases where there have been deadlocks and they've been – the courts have been deadlocked, he, he might start swinging some of these votes. Is, is that possible? Yeah. I mean, historically, Justice Kennedy has been the swing vote on certain types of cases. Uh, but now there, – but there are a whole other body of cases that have been deadlocked for four – where where you've got Kennedy kind of historically and currently on one side. Mm. He's, he's generally a pretty conservative judge, except on the so-called social issue cases. And so a lot of those, you know, not big, famous social issue cases, but administrative law cases, uh, the power of the federal government versus the individual. I mean, they're all a whole series of cases where Justice Kennedy is pretty reliably on the conservative side of things. And and a lot of those cases have been deadlocked, and now he, he Gorsuch, will come on, and very likely in many of those cases uh, align up with the four, again, so-called conservative judges, justices. Yeah. Now, again, that doesn't apply to cases that have already been heard. Yeah. I think he can't, won't participate in those cases. Now, they, they also keep talking about the fact that uh, President Trump may have two or three more justices to appoint. Um, now, why is that? I mean, short of a medical emergency or a death, I guess the justices can retire when they want to retire, right? But then do, do they tend to retire when they're when – they're, uh, so if they were nominated by a Republican, do they tend to retire with a Republican president? Uh, they tend to, and that actually could be the case with Justice Kennedy, who is 80 years old. And there's there's a lot of talk in Washington. Some people even purport to know that Justice Kennedy is going to retire this summer. My own, just, this is just with no connection, just my own view, is I think the fact that the Senate went nuclear in my mind, makes it less likely that Justice Kennedy is going to retire. But there are strong indications among people who know him pretty well that he has been planning to retire mm. uh, uh, even this at the end of this term. So we'll see. We'll, we'll know that in, a, in a two or three months. So wow. the other the other justices, I do not see Justice Ginsburg or Justice Breyer retiring. I don't don't see that until they 
actually have to. Yeah. But those are the three that people are, when people talk about two or three, they're talking about Justice Kennedy and Justice Ginsburg and Justice Breyer. All three of them, I think, are in their 80s. And I think Justice Ginsburg is like 84. So, wow. Um, it's a it's it's such a. Boy, it's such a big decision. And with the nuclear option, I guess, already having been um, established now, do you sense that – and two, with the uh, with what the Republicans did uh, by not allowing President Obama to appoint anyone in his last year before an election or in the election year, I mean, it seems like Trump's only got – President Trump's got two, three years to appoint people now. Yeah, at least, and unless he wins another term. Yeah. Um, yeah, he do, he does, and I'm going to go out on a limb for our listeners' benefit here and just say this nuclear option, in my mind, makes it even more likely that uh, Utah Supreme Court Justice Tom Lee could be nominated. Tom, uh, Justice Lee was on the list of uh, 21 that, that Trump submitted and said he was going to choose somebody from that list. A, uh, a law school, some professors did a, an analysis of all 21 of the people on that list, looking at their writings, their speeches, and their judicial opinions in the case of the judges. And they concluded that by a long way, Justice Tom Lee was the most like Scalia of anybody on that list of 21. Really? Yeah. And that's Senator Mike Lee's brother. Brother, right, right. Oh, <laughs> This is crazy. Oh yeah, because now they can they'll just push through a conservative. I mean, not the not that the conservative matters, but they'll well, push through. Justice Lee, Justice Lee is every bit as qualified as Judge Gorsuch. He's a, he's great. a judge on a on the uh, on a state supreme court, not on not on a circuit court. But he's argued cases before the Supreme Court. He clerked for a very famous judge uh, on the Fourth Circuit, and he also clerked for Justice Thomas. Uh, on the Supreme Court. So he's got a pedigree. Yeah. It's an awful lot like uh, uh, now Justice Gorsuch. Yeah, that's uh, interesting news. Good uh, good potential pick there, Joe. Um, let's take a break, come back, and continue the discussion more with Joe in the know, Joe Cannon, who's the CEO of Fuel Freedom Foundation. You can find more about that at fuelfreedom.org. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Our guest, of course, Joe Cannon, our Washington insider. We call him Joe in the know. And uh, he is um, he has a, a strong history and, and just background in politics and just all around great guy. He, we we like to pick his brain to find out what, what's really going on maybe behind the scenes whenever he happens to know something from one of his many contacts back in Washington. Joe, thank you again for being with us. Thanks, Matt. So uh, let's let's. I mean, there's there's a lot going on. We've talked about Gorsuch, Syria, the bombing in Syria. It seems like confusion from the White House, where Rex Tillerson, Secretary of State, is saying one thing, um, and then a few days later, we're bombing Syria, and then uh, Nikki Haley saying stuff that it, it just seems like none of them are on the same page. Um. Okay. Well, I guess I didn't have quite that view. The 
I think it was definitely a, a tactic to not let anybody know what was going to happen until it did happen. Yeah. And so I, I think that was a very that part was very well thought out. I don't know much about the backstory. I mean, it is true. You've got a secretary of state who sometimes doesn't seem completely connected, although, I mean, he certainly got on board pretty quickly by by being, at least making tough sounds toward Russia. Right. Uh, I think Nikki Haley is doing a fabulous job. At, yeah. At the, you know, I don't have any inside information, by the way, on that, but just, just her public statements, you know, the Bolivia came forward and they said they wanted to have a Security Council meeting on uh, on the bombing of Syria, but they wanted to have it in a closed-door session. And she said, no way. Anybody, we're going to do it. We'll we're happy to have a meeting. We're, we had, it turns out the U.S. Is the, is the president of that body right now. She said, yeah, we'll have, a, we'll have a, um, an open meeting. Anybody who wants to come forth and defend Syria, they're welcome. But do it on the record. Yeah, it was yeah. Really a nice statement. Yeah, she's she's doing great. The Syria, the Syrian thing. I mean, uh, it was a very big week for the president. You have to say that. Yeah. With Gorsuch and Syria, a lot of people are saying he became president by bombing Syria. Basically, the most people have been supportive of him. There's been a little grumbling from his base, interestingly. Right. But but it was such a targeted. Um, you know, a targeted hit that, um, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't see his base leaving him over this, but he does need to be careful going forward. But there's so many things. I mean, he, you know, he's, he's sounding, sounded pretty presidential. It's a pretty presidential tactic. And, you know, even CNN folks were, you know, uh, very, very supportive, very uh, you know, almost uh, praising him. In, and he's meeting with well, the pre- he was meeting with the president uh, or the yeah the president of China. Right. I mean, yeah, it, right it was at the time, incredible yeah. backdrop. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the other thing that I thought was interesting is I thought we were told that Syria removed all of their chemical weapons. Right, right. And all of a sudden, we find out that they not only they didn't, they're still going to use them, or they I don't know if they're going to use them ever again, but. Uh, uh, yeah, so I wonder how much else we're going to learn. I wonder what we're going to learn about Iran now mm. um, and all the various deals that we thought, you know, had one objective in mind and maybe maybe they weren't, you know, maybe they didn't accomplish all the objectives that, that were stated. In yeah. In, Do this, you... in this case, for sure, there were clear statements. We got, you know, uh, Syria, we got Assad to get rid of all the chemical weapons, and the Russians were helpful to us. And by the way, speaking of Russia, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I wonder where the narrative now is on Russia uh, having deep influence. Right, because uh, he blew Trump. up. Yeah, now Russia's mad at President Trump. Yeah, so there are a lot of backstories on that particular one, aside from the big story itself. Does I, I guess um, it's a really weird thing, and uh, you hear the media talking about it a lot because as President Trump was running, and for years he was beating, uh, you know, beating up and screaming out the message that we don't need to get involved in Syria, basically telling President Obama he's stupid to get involved in Syria, and then he's now in, involved in Syria. But but he also was the contrasting point is he sh- he was showed to have a heart, right? I mean. When you finally yeah, see yeah. the the suffering, he did something. And, and I, you know, it seemed very genuine. Um, of course, 
people can seem genuine, but it did seem genuine. And, and the whole interaction between him and uh, the King of Jordan, that, that whole interaction seemed to be very deeply genuine. I mean, he seemed moved. Because yeah. It happened right, you know, just before that press conference, the joint press conference. And, you know, he seemed visibly emotional and, you know, kind of playing off back and forth between uh, uh, the King king of Jordan. So it's, hmm. it's a, a very interesting story. Yeah, it's a story of reverses, a story of learning new things. I think it also sent a message, okay, he's Trump is a big talker. We know that. He's a big tweeter. But that's a different thing from unloosing, you know, 50 or so Tomahawk missiles on yeah. an airbase. And if you're Iran, if you're North Korea, um, if you're Russia even, maybe you're going to be a little more cautious. Yeah, watch out. Um, meanwhile, uh, back at the farm, um, <laughs> Trump right. and Bannon uh, – or the, Bannon – and there, there's all this news that Bannon may be out. Bannon was pulled off of the Security Council. Um, apparently he's fighting a lot with, with Kushner who's the son-in-law, married to Ivanka. So what do you see going on there? So there has been turmoil at the White House. I think that's fair to say. There's a lot of of what appears to be ready-fire aim. And some of that ought to probably properly go to Reince Priebus, the the chief of staff. And and apparently he, he, uh, Trump is considering replacing him. Right. Don't have any inside knowledge on that. As between, you know, Bannon and Kushner, apparently they have now made peace. But that strikes me as the peace between Russia and the Baltic states. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. Baltic states are uh, not married to the daughter. <laughs> and uh, so I, I think there will be peace. I think Bannon was very anxious to preserve a role for himself. And in and one level, so he and Kushner really turn out to be the people most responsible for the Trump victory. Yeah. And at least at least they're credited with that. I don't know what's real, but they they are credited that way and they both act that way. And it was really Kushner who was pushing Bannon to come in in the first place. But you know, um, my old political science professor Stan Taylor said, uh, power doesn't lie in the street three days. Uh, there's a lot of power in the White House and a lot of it to be divided up and a lot of it to be jealously guarded. And so there's a lot of that pushing and shoving going on. And like I say, however, between Bannon and Kushner, it is a little bit like Russia and the Baltic states. Absolutely. Do you sense, uh, because with Bannon, if Bannon were to leave, wasn't Bannon the big band leader of taming of the regulatory state? Uh, he was, yeah. He is, was, but he's not the only one. There's a, uh, there's a whole... Uh, inertial body of force aiming in that direction. And, and speaking of which, I think of all of the places you can see the, where this White House has acted surgically, this is, this is the one. This would, this would be the one. I mean, the, there's, we've talked before uh, on the program about a, an office in OMB called OIRA, the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. Right. And, and uh, the president just named a woman named Naomi Rao who could not possibly be better qualified to run to be the regulatory czar. Really? Uh, she has deep background in government. She's on something called the Administrative Conference of the United States, which is the main body that looks at administrative law. She chairs 
the uh, American Bar Association panel uh, group, subgroup on regulatory and administrative law. She's a law professor, but she's had government experience. She's also, and very, very importantly, a, a very distinguished lawyer. Uh, I mentioned earlier uh, Justice Lee on the Utah Supreme Court. Uh, this woman also went to the University of Chicago Law School. She also clerked for Harvey Wilkinson. Mm. She also clerked for Justice Clarence Thomas. She has a deep legal background, and that's very important because a lot of the historic, the previous, including in President Reagan's time, efforts to do regulatory reform, regulatory relief, attack the regulatory behemoth, um, they, they foundered sometimes because they were not uh, done in an appropriate way from a from a legal perspective. So she's she's got the skill. Every no, this office that she's now ahead of, every regulation of the government goes through that for review to see if it has if its benefits. Oh wow! More than the costs. I mean, it's a very it's a very significant position. She's also in charge of implementing. Uh, there are now three executive orders that the, the president has signed, you know, really surgically going after regulations that require a regulatory budget by each agency and department. They also require that if you're going to propose a new regulation, yeah. you have to get rid of two. One, I thought, honestly, when I first heard that, I thought it was really stupid. But just last week, I spent about three hours with sort of the author of that, also a professor uh, not from the same university, but from George Washington University. It's a very well thought out approach, hmm. and it's not just two for one. It's, it's it, the costs have to equal each other, so you have to get rid of two. Ooh, it's cost equal for cost. Of cost. Interesting. For one for one new cost, and then all of that's um, that's embedded in this so-called regulatory budget. And then over and above that, you've got the actual budget that the president put forward, which, you know, is a stocking horse. It's going to go up to the hill and get all challenged. But but unlike in the past where you've said, OK, we're going to take a 10 percent cut at the Department of Agriculture, this budget is very surgical down to the budget unit of which things they want to eliminate or cut back. Wow. And that, also, that also has regulatory implications. So you've got. You know, you've got to really, uh, like I said, so this is a very surgical strike. It's like, it's like the Syrian strike. It's yeah. very surgical, very well planned, and very well staffed. It's a lot of smart, smart folks looking at it. And it seems like once you start pulling on the purse strings you're, and you eliminate the money and make it have to be fiscally smart, then you make sure that it doesn't grow uh, and get away from you. Well, Joe, we appreciate your great insight As always, Joe Cannon is his name. You can find out more about the work he's doing to lower your fuel costs here in the United States by going to his website, fuelfreedom.org. Joe Cannon is his name, and he's the CEO there. We'll take a break and come back. McKenna Baus will be in the house. Baus in the house, a little mind bender for us. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome to her house. She is looking about. She is here to break down things you didn't know. Now. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. McKenna Baus is in the house. 
How are you, McKenna? Doing well. McKenna's one of our producers, our social media expert as well, and uh, today she's she she does these little mind benders. She just tries to get our mind to twist a little bit, just to maybe see something a little differently. Yeah, get you thinking in new ways. And today you're going to be talking euphemisms. Yeah. So now, youth, like the youth of the world, like the euphemism. Never mind. <laughs> um, this is because we use them all the time. We sneak out these substitute words. Yeah, and we replace, you know, common phrases with these more complicated ways of thing, saying things. A lot yeah. of times because, you know, we read it as it's more polite or, you know, it's a, it's a nicer it's subtle, way of yeah. putting things. Yeah. And... A lot of times we talk about them and their positive use in the sense of, you know, instead of saying somebody died, saying, you know, somebody has passed on. passed on, yeah. And how that's, you know, more sensitive to the, you know, people who are grieving. And they do have those benefits. But at the same time, some of the euphemisms we use have a really nasty way of leading to bad behavior. Why? Because, like, it, we don't know it's bad? So... What it is is like, for example, um, if I was to say, oh, I'm just, you know, being maybe selective yeah. about the things that I'm telling somebody right, right. instead of saying I'm lying. The idea of, you know, telling just the parts that they yeah. need to know. I'm not telling the whole truth. Yeah. And instead of just calling it a lie. a lie, what happens is they did this study where they had people – Listen to like, to judge scenarios, and they'd yeah. say like this person did X. In one case, it's where they say it very directly, like they cheated yeah. on something, and in another case, they said you know they checked their answers. Uh huh. And people were consistently they said they were more likely to behave in that kind of behavior when it was phrased indirectly. Interesting. So when you when you use a euphemism that softens or blunts the pain then or the issue then they're more you're more likely to have people do the negative thing exactly and when phrased this way it doesn't change how we think about the behavior of others we're under no illusion when somebody else says something that we know what you mean we know you you, know you you you, you're talking about cheating about lying it only has an effect in our own personal thinking about our own behavior. So it's like we now have an out. We have a better way of phrasing it so I can cheat. Exactly. It tricks our mind and sort of is this a way to relieve our guilt. Interesting. Because when we phrase it with these euphemisms and we don't call something by its direct name, we are able to escape that guilt. We're able to justify a way we don't have to directly face the Our pain. behavior, yeah, boy. Now I thought that I thought it, this was what mothers were for was to use this blunt language. You know that it goes it to show like we need moms that. Do that, like yeah, you're lying. Quit cheating. And it's you know it's good that they do because it does help. Yeah, um, build up these sense of morals that we have as individuals. But it's just something that we need to be careful of because the more we use it, oh yeah, it makes it easier to use it in the future, and so. If you're using any kind of euphemisms to describe your own behavior, that's a big sort of red flag as to, you know, this may not be a path you want to continue. Interesting research. 
McKenna, that's a good learning. That's that's a that's we just been edified. There you Jeffrey, go. Jeffrey, we yeah. need to use more direct language. Yeah, I you know, but I will say that uh, if you continue to uh, treat me the way that you have been, I think you should be euphemized. We'll have we'll have to talk about that. We'll have another segment Euphemasia. on Euphemasia. <laughs> Talking about that. Death by euphemism. Tomorrow. Thanks, McKenna. Great insight. Use the words. You be direct. Be frank. Be frank. Or if you're not frank, just be you. And do it frankly. That's it. We'll take a break, folks. We'll come back. This is the Matt Townsend show helping you be the good in the world. It's the house of bows. It's the House of Bows. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. Happy Monday to you. It is... uh, it's not just any day, by the way. It's it's Golfer's Day. This is the, the some people believe the word golf is derived from the phrase "gentlemen only, ladies forbidden." It works if you see Go, the history of some of the older golf clubs in America. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. No matter what the origin of the word, the game we currently recognize as golf originated in Scotland, somewhere in the 14th century. And the earliest recorded use of the term in reference to the game was a ban enacted by King James II in 1457. Oh. Wow, great hit. Yeah. That's a great shot. All good. Got the, uh, got the got, you got our audience involved. That was a great hit, Jeff. Yeah, they're kind of, uh, they're not as uh, big as they used to be, that the was, audience. That was a nice swing with that putter. That was the non-Tiger Woods audience right there yeah just because they clapped well no just they're they're not clapping as loud there's not as many yeah yeah they, we don't have the tiger woods sized crowd they had some uh, shots at the masters where the the golfers on the tee mm-hmm. and as he goes to tee off down the sides of the green or all the or, all, or the fairway or all the people lined up and you could see that it was maybe like three people deep Mm-hmm. This was the final round, so this people was, were excited. Yeah. When Tiger Woods was in a final round, final round, it was like six, seven people deep. It was yeah. just packed, unbelievable. And there's plenty of room. You could find plenty of places. Do they stand. not all realize that it's a tiny ball flying at a really high speed? Yeah, it's better to go stand by the green. Yeah, because then you can actually watch the yeah. the putts. You can see that. But when they tee off, it's like they hit the ball rips out of there at 100 miles an hour, and you're like, yeah. I know a man that was blinded by a golf ball. Yeah. It ain't pretty. No. Yeah. But the way Jeff hits, I don't think anyone would be blinded. Wow. There's, I, I went golfing with someone we uh, work with here in the building. Really? And he teed off. Was he teed off? And the ball went almost straight backwards. So you, basically you weren't safe anywhere wow. around him when he was trying to golf. Was that Ben Bagley? Yes. <laughs> It was dangerous. <laughs> we'll have to bring that up later today. He hit a, uh, a uh, what, the uh, the par and distance sign? Yeah, he yeah. He nailed it. 
well, and it was clear it, over like behind him went, almost. Well, that's a, I mean, that's the hardest shot in golf. So we all started just backing up like, whoa, <laughs> we're going to die. Stand back, kids. Stand yes. back. I think he's better now, but then he yeah. was kind of wild. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, honestly, aren't we all better than we used to be? Mm, I think people go backwards. Yeah. Yeah. Totally true. Did you guys ever cheat when you went golfing and you just automatically gave yourself a high score of six so that you would win? Um. No, never done that. It's not really how the scoring works, but no. But again, no. But we're playing with Jeff later today. Well, I mean, if he wants to play we're it that pl- way, well, he can. Sh- 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 we're playing for dinner today. I know. And Jeff, run the score up. You want? I mean, it's like it should be in the it should be in the low hundreds. Mm. <laughs> and we won't even watch. We won't even count your. You count right, but get as many as you can. So golfing high score. When you bowl, I mean, when I bowl, though, I get like a 75, and that's, I mean, so much better than... Yeah, yeah. Keep those scores low. In fact, we'll go bowling next week for dinner. (laughs) This is going to be so much fun. Hey, today we're going to be talking about how to personalize your learning. You know, you you got to... You're here to learn on this great big ball of mud. You can learn or just fight it the rest of your life. But we should not stop learning just because we're done with school. And how do you how do you help your kids create a life of learning? Pretty powerful uh, topic coming up. We'll get to all that fun, of course, plus just some headlines, empty news we call it, some of the news you might even need, but not all the news in the empty news segment are you going to need. So we'll, we'll have we'll have some fun with the news and the headlines, and uh, we we do it because it makes you feel better knowing that you know you don't do some things that are that dumb. A lot of stuff you do is just really smart. Um, But first, let's get to the real headlines with Terry South. Terry, what is going on around the rest of the country? Senator Bernie Sanders on Sunday urged caution and a reassertion of congressional authority in response to President Trump's Thursday airstrike on the Syrian regime targets. When we get sucked into a war, we do not know the unintended consequences. It is easy to get into a war than it is to get out of a war, as we have learned now over the last 15 years in the Middle East. Sanders also issued a statement in which he warned these strikes could lead to the United States once again being dragged back into the quagmire of a long-term military engagement in the Middle East. Quagmire. Oh, I love the word. It's a, it's got a point, but... Yeah. No, but it's, it's, it is. It's easier, you know, it's easier to... Get in, then get out. Got to have a plan. Yeah. We haven't Think really done ahead. that in the last while. Neil Gorsuch took his oath of office to become the ninth justice in a short ceremony this morning before a public ceremony later at the White House. Now, after a lifetime of preparation and several grueling weeks as a nominee, he starts his tenure as the junior most justice. The junior most justice starts off at the bottom of the heap, sits at the far wing of the bench, and speaks last at conference. Indeed, the conference, the regular closed-door meeting where the justices discuss cases, has an unusual tradition. Only justices are allowed to attend, no clerks, no assistants, just the nine, and the junior-most justice is assigned the task of answering the door. <laughs> it's a job. That Justice Elena Kagan, uh, confirmed at the bench in 2010, is likely to uh, be relieved that she's not the junior-most justice that has to answer the door anymore. She lightheartedly <laughs> described the job qualifications at a Princeton appearance in 2014. The junior justice has to answer the door. She goes, I mean, literally, if there's a knock at the door, I don't hear it. There will not be a single other person in the room who moves. They all just stare at me. 
waiting for me to answer the door. Oh, my hell. <laughs> like, like, like if one of the justices forgot their glasses. Yeah. But she feels like they do it on purpose to make her get up and answer the door. It's their hazing. This is justice hazing. But don't they do don't they use um, don't they use uh, tape, some kind of duct tape or something too on the justice? I don't know. Don't they tape him to a chair we'll to the see. bench? We'll see. Huh. So yeah, can't you see a bunch of seventy year old justices taping Justice Gorsuch to the bench? Yeah, they're giving him wedgies. <laughs> Take that. Okay, kind of crazy. Funny. Get the door. And in, in other stories here, way back in February 2016, it emerged that $81 million had disappeared from the Central Bank of Bangladesh's account at the New York Federal Reserve and reappeared in accounts in the Philippines. Oh, wow. In a mysterious act of cyber robbery that fell straight out of a Hollywood screenplay, now it turns out that the federal pros- federal prosecutors who have been investigating the situation may have found that both the middlemen and the heist masterminds, North Korea... Really? According to the Wall Street Journal, a key turning point in the investigation occurred when investigators linked the code used to perpetrate the cyber heist of the $81 million with the massive hack attack that happened on Sony Pictures back in 2014. So the hmm. same computer code was used in both situations. That attack on Sony, the FBI blamed on North Korea. If charges were filed, the Wall Street Journal notes, they would target alleged Chinese middlemen who prosecutors believe helped North Korea orchestrate the theft. And though there may not be charges filed against North Koreans, the nation would likely be implicated. Speaking at a panel in the Aspen Institute on Tuesday, Deputy Director of National Security Agency Richard Leggett said, if that linkage between the two cybercrimes is true, it means that the nation state, North Korea, is now robbing banks. Holy cow. Which would be kind of nuts. What will they do next? I don't know. So they're threatening nuclear arms. They keep setting off missiles to show that they have long-distance coverage. And they're robbing banks. They're robbing banks of Bangladesh's money. Boy. And putting it in Philippine banks. He's going to get in trouble. And finally, a computer hack set off all the emergency sirens in Dallas for about 90 minutes uh, overnight, <laughs> this over the weekend. It was um, scary. It's, it's their uh, warning system for their tornadoes. Yeah. So they're all like air raid sirens from, you know. Like and you the, wake up at 2 in the morning and the air raid sirens going off? The, it went from 1130 at night till 130 in the morning oh, on Saturday. Engineers manually just had to turn the whole system off. Because they've had it before where hackers were able to get one or two of those sirens to go off. But it was the entire network across the entire city of Dallas. Which is pretty big. Unbelievable. And they're all waiting for the tornado. So you got 1.6 million people, and they started looking on Twitter, and people were like, never listen to these again. These always go off. These are always, uh, you know, like yeah. false alarms. Always yeah. listen. <laughs> you can always go back to bed. Well, once the things go off. At 1 o'clock in the morning, yeah. Oh, and man. And they're loud. I, I spent some time in Texas and had one of those right outside my bedroom window. <laughs> that was not fun. But safe. You were safer. Well, not my ears or my heart when I wake up in the middle of the night. And then what are you supposed to do in a tornado? I guess go to the basement, go to the cellar? Yeah. Go to the... I guess. What if you don't have a cellar? You just... get under your desk. Right. Hmm. Duck and cover. Duck mm-hmm. and cover. I thought that was for bombs. It worked in the 50s. Crazy. You know, you're not safe anywhere anymore. Did you hear about this? Um, a, a Utah school district has agreed to pay $100,000 to the family of a teenage girl who was injured while wearing goggles to simulate drunkenness. Beer goggles. Beer goggles. <laughs> so they use these goggles to simulate drunkenness 
Uh, and in 2014, in her health class, they were doing an experiment. The Davis County's, the Davis School District will put more than $61,000 into a trust account for Kylie Nielsen to settle a personal injury lawsuit. She can get access to the money when she turns 18. The district also agreed to pay $13,000 for medical expenses and nearly 26000 for legal fees. Holy cow. Nielsen was 13 years old when she participated in an exercise to simulate alcohol impairment at Centennial Junior High School. Her teacher, Rick Smith, encouraged students to play tag and run around a classroom while wearing drunk goggles. Oops. Wow. According to the court documents, Nielsen's uh, foot got stuck in a desk and she broke her ankle in multiple places. Sheesh. That, the, it's, the bad thing is she, she experienced drunk. Without being drunk. Right. Right? I mean, I'm assuming maybe it numbs the pain if you were actually drunk, but she just had the goggles on. It it goes on and says that she – one of the – it didn't heal correctly. So one of her legs ended up being longer than the other one. Oh, no. And then – Apparently her doctor had drunk goggles on. On that day, she had just uh, qualified for a state track tournament. Yep. All star track. And she snapped her ankle. That school district is lucky that she only got a hundred thousand, and you know, what like seventy five thousand of that goes to her. Yeah, that's how that's how this works. Hmm. When you dial those one eight hundred attorney numbers, you're you'll get money, but you'll you maybe will get less because she will never have that running career. No, but she is a golfer now. Hmm. So it's so it's it suits yeah. her right. She rides golf. a cart. Yeah. That'll only become a problem if she ever tries to play in a tournament where they don't let you do that. Yeah, but she'll have an excuse because she broke her ankle. And she can go to court again and make them let her use the, the cart, just like that guy did in the PGA. A I mean, years I get ago. the goggles, but what you ought to do is put them in a simulator. Yeah, that'd be the. And then safer. let him just drive, but you don't give people goggles, and he should have handed her scissors and said, just start running around the room here. <laughs> Why did the teacher think that was a good idea to just say, okay, now run around the room and try to chase each other and not break your ankles? Yeah, I don't uh, – sometimes you're not thinking. You're just like – it's like you've got beer goggles on. Beer brain. Beer brain? Yeah, beer brain. Speaking of beer brains, a shoplifter trapped in a store after uh, the store closed. Hmm. And they had to, he had to call 911 to get out. Ohio police say a suspected shoplifter called 911 for help after she hid in a fitting room. So, I love how you emphasize she. Well, because I earlier had said he. Oh. Ah. Yeah. Uh, she had to hide in the fitting room at closing, got locked inside of the coal store. And uh, she had also taken some clothing. You know, women. They saw that on a video. Yeah. She had stuffed clothing. Away. Well, she was in there. Might right. as well pick out some a few <laughs> items for yourself. Women can also commit crimes, Matt. Yeah, they can. Police say officers already were heading to the store when she called nine one one because she set off the alarm. Ah, so they, I mean, they didn't. She didn't even need to call. Right. Thirty-five-year-old Joanne Havens told police she heard the store closing announcements and simply didn't leave in time. I mean, it seems like. It's got to take a half hour to 40 minutes to close a store. It takes forever. I used to work at a retail situation. You'd make that announcement, people would hang out for an hour. Like somehow it didn't like, well, it, did, it didn't pertain to them. When they start turning the lights off, yeah. that seems like that. And people then, come back and say, can we help you? We've closed. Can yeah. we help you? And they turn your the final air conditioner off and yeah. it starts getting sweaty. Isn't yeah. checking the stalls, though, part of the closing process? You'd you would think. think. Yeah. yeah. But she probably wasn't in the stall at that time. Hmm. 
She was probably hiding in a rack of clothes. She was in housewares. She was stalling. Yeah. Totally stalling. Uh, without, by the way, any drunk goggles. Hmm. She obviously had drunk ears or whatever. She couldn't hear. Right. Maybe she was turning out the headphones. They have a nice selection of headphones at Kohl's. What was her yeah, What do. was her excuse when the police came? What? Oops. What? Oh, I just didn't I didn't get out in time. And then the problem is they check her purse and bada boom bada bing she's got a bunch of jewelry or whatever in her purse. She's got goods in her purse. No receipt. Mm. No return. She's like I couldn't pay for them because they weren't here. That's well, a good point. And they didn't they don't have baskets that I can carry this stuff around in. Yeah. Actually, I think Coles does. You need to shop with Coles more. <laughs> anyway, not everyone's perfect, right? But at least we don't do that, right? Don't do that. Okay, we'll take a break. When we come back, we're going to be discussing how to make a personal learning, uh, a, a, to personalize your learning, how to go create your own plan for growth, for development. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Have you ever heard of personalized learning? Well, you know, a lot of politicians are starting to talk about it, but, uh, you know, they talk about a lot of things. One interesting little side note is you may have heard that Mark Zuckerberg, the founder of Facebook, and his wife, um, Priscilla Chan, have they're putting and setting aside $45 billion into a fund and one of the things they want to use the fund for is to um, help kind of grow and endorse this personalized education program or concept and to better define it. And so we were interested in finding out more about it and uh, who who better to teach us about it than the person that's pretty much written the book on it, Making Learning Personal. Her name is uh, Kathleen McClaskey. She's the co-founder and chief executive officer of Personalized Learning, LLC, and the co-author of the book, Making Learning Personal. She joins us now, uh, live from New Hampshire, to walk us through what is personalized learning. Ms. McClaskey, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, well, thank you for inviting me uh, to the show. You bet. Honored to have you. Talk to us about, um, explain to us what, what is this personalized learning and, um, and why is it so important to our kids? Well, first of all, let me say that you know, we have schools that have been working in the realm of that one-size-fits-all and personalized learning, um, and we've sort of lost the fact that the focus really needs to be on the learner. So let me say that personalized learning always starts with the learner, mm. not the curriculum, not the technology, not the building. So yeah. uh, that's first and foremost. Um, personalized learning is where we give learners voice and choice in how they learn. Um, and we want them to be able to own and drive their own learning in the end because we've sort of taken that ownership away from kids um, with all the standardized testing that we happen to do and all the scripted environments in which teachers work in. Uh, we also want them to be able to develop the skills uh, around uh, choosing using tools to support their learning um, because lots of kids have you know, real challenges in their learning, and we need to empower them on how to use those tools to remove barriers. And we also want them to be able to self-direct their learning because what is the purpose of education 
unless we develop learners that are independent and self-directed in their learning. Oh, I love those ideas. Just as I see my teenagers move on into college and they look at me like a deer in the headlights thinking, um, now what? How do I, how do I go about managing my own learning? Yeah, so you know, so the thing is, is that we've um, developed um, a personal learner profile to really give the learner voice um, on how they learn best. Okay, we want kids to be able to articulate their strengths and challenges, their preferences and needs, and we want to help them uh, with that information to develop a personal learning plan that has goals around skills, um, goals around uh, college and career. Also, citizenship goals and real personal goals, uh, because uh, every kid has an interest, a passion, or uh, wants to be somebody someday. And we want to also give them those experiences, um, you know, early on, so that they can try those things out uh, when they're at the high school level, even the middle school level. Mm. Um, and we want kids to be able to know where they want to go, because you know we waste a, a lot of money in college in educating children that have no idea what they want to do. Oh yeah. Yeah. And yet and yet they've been le- leaving clues their entire life for what they've been wanting to do, but it's like no one's picking up on those clues. Exactly. So the thing is, um that whole idea of that personal learner profile and the plan, that's where that that relationship builds between teacher and learners. Um every kid has a story, but rarely do they get to tell it. And when we really ask learners about who they are as a learner, we really say to them, oh, we care about you. Um, and But you need to sort of continue and build that relationship with learners. They have to feel like they are cared for uh, in the classroom. And they're just not there just to be the recipients of your lecture or your instruction. Hmm. Um, because, and w- Kathleen, yeah. not to interrupt, but when, you, when, you, when, we, when we show them that we're going to listen and that we mm-hmm. care for their opinion – Right. It seems like simultaneously we're, we're not abandoning them, but we're also saying to them, you you inevitably are responsible for this. Right. And we will coach you, mentor you, be there with you, guide you. But eventually this is you. This is yours. And I think how empowering to start getting that in their heads that they are an active part of their own future success. Absolutely. Uh, And, you know, I will tell you that personalized learning is not really isolated. Uh, It's really done in a lot of different places, and uh, it's very, very empowering to the learner. Um, And they become far more interested in in learning and more engaged in learning when you actually give them that ownership. Uh, Today, you know, we have a lot of passive. There's lots of data that tells us how passive children are and how unengaged they are as time goes on, especially through high school. And that's the whole, the, the crux of this is that kids should be more engaged as they uh, grow older, uh, I mean, in school and n- not less engaged. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and, and we also need to, and that's a whole piece around that ownership to learning um, that's extremely important for kids. Is this, so, now when you say all of this, Kathleen, I sit here and I think, okay, how, I mean, I I love the idea of this happening with me and my child, and I would love the schools to know how to do it, and um, my colleges and universities around me to know how to do it. But the the education system is this huge behemoth machine that is it capable of doing this? Oh yeah, I mean the thing is, you know, sometimes schools um, we've seen entire school districts decide to do this. Hmm. 
We've seen uh, individual schools, but I will tell you, because I follow uh, educational policy as well, is that uh, under the new reauthorization um, is that there's going to be opportunity to really create these more innovative environments. There's going to be a lot more flexibility in how we assess learners um, in the process. And it's going to give schools, because the new law really really turns things over back to the local school districts and states. Uh, so it's not going to be federally dictated like it has been over the last, um, I want to say, 14 years, I think. Yeah. Uh, so I think that we're going to see a real change up. And we're also going to see more around what's called competency-based learning uh, versus grades. Um, that's a big change. And, and now the law says, you know, that's opened it up completely to states. A lot of states have already adopted what's called competencies, because what does a grade really say to you? Right. It doesn't really tell you what yeah. it really can do. So competencies is something that you're going to hear more and more of and uh, for all your listeners in your schools that you should be asking about that. So it's, it's uh, a competency then would be they have the, they have the ability, they have the competency to, li- to read at a ninth grade level. Uh, right. So, but the thing is, there's a whole set of skills. We're talking about competencies around skills. Yeah, comprehension. Um, uh, yeah. Okay. Great. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Which is so yeah. Like, exactly. Now you know that they can do all of the skills. Right. And have and possess the competency, not just that they got A's. But correct. So the thing is, let me just say to you is that there are some states that are moved to competency-based diplomas, and one of them is the state of Maine. Hmm. So I think in 2018. It'll be a competency-based diploma. So the question often comes up, well, what about higher ed? Are they going to buy into Will Harvard take that? Yeah. Oh, yes, sure. So the thing is, is that there's been, especially here in New England, we really have seen uh, colleges and universities really aligned to that, um, that whole concept of competency-based diplomas. And in fact, you know, uh, if they don't, I mean, um, higher ed, by the way, is is struggling as well. Um, So... Uh, they they sort of need to move uh, to twelve, for sure. Yeah, you know what? I can totally, I can sense that because, um, you know, it seemed like higher ed was turning into a for profit, you know, learning experience, and now a lot of people are carrying student debt, don't have jobs. Many might not even they have diplomas without competencies, and um, all of a sudden, you know, we this personalized learning is important. I also notice my own kids have learned stuff online, they've learned stuff on YouTube, and they actually have acquired competencies without ever learning it at school. I have a son that can put together videos, he can do all of this incredible high-tech stuff, and then he goes to his tech class at school, and the guy teaching the tech class doesn't know half of what he knows, but he could have passed the competency off years ago. Exactly. So the thing is, kids actually, on these competencies, kids are moving at their own pace. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they're energized, and then they yeah. run into the wall of the bureaucracy of education that says, "No, you've got to all, you've got to have this competency before we can look at any of these other ones." Right. So the thing is, is that you I mean um, there's data systems to keep an eye on what kids are doing as far as competencies are concerned, uh, and you're absolutely right, by the way, that kids are learning really anywhere, anytime, and. Uh, and sometimes school is becoming totally irrelevant. So, like, if you really want to learn, I mean, something in advance, I mean, there's what's called MOOCs, you know, yeah. um, open uh, course software, you know, coursework that's available through all sorts of universities. 
And um, and now, actually, some of those MOOCs are actually being recognized for actual credits that you could transfer to a university if you wanted to. So kids actually learning in a lot of other different places because the technology allows you, there really is no special time to learn. You don't have to learn within a, mm-hmm. a, a building anymore. You can learn really anytime, anywhere. And yeah. that's what's really what, you know, educate. It's the children learn what they want to learn uh, in the end, uh, and they actually can seek that out. So that's the difference between, you know, today versus even 10 years ago. Yeah, I know. So things are changing pretty rapidly with the technology. We're growing up, aren't we, Kathleen? And hopefully, I mean, yeah, this, and hopefully the systems will keep up. You know, we're really looking forward to the next decade um, in which all of this is going to change. Um, you know, to give you an idea about those competencies, well, over 30 states really actually are moving in that direction if they haven't done that already. Mm. Um so it's also called performance-based learning. It's performance-based, competency-based, just so that your listeners know that, that they hear those terminologies, that that's what those mean. And, um, and they do, uh, are, are recognized by many colleges and universities uh, now because they have to survive. <laughs> because why would you go to college and pay all that money to get a piece of your education online and actually get it through MOOCs? Oh, exactly. No, exactly. Um, oh, interesting stuff. Kathleen, take, let's take a break, uh, and, and uh, we'll be right back. I want to continue this discussion. Find out really what more we can be doing as parents. What's the parent's role? What's the oh. teacher's role? And, and just learn more um, from your, your great work on uh, personalized learning and your book, Making Learning Personal. We'll take a break, folks. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you today learn how to learn. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we're talking about personalized learning, and uh, we've got Kathleen McClaskey on the phone. She's the author and co-author of the book, Making Learning Personal, um, also the co-founder and chief executive officer of Personalized Learning. Um, interesting learning, I think, for all of us, more than 30 years of experience in using technology in the classroom. Uh, again, Kathleen McClaskey, thank you so much for being with us. Well, you're welcome, Mike. My- just been really enjoying doing this show with you. This, this is such an important topic, and I, I, I'm so. I, I guess I'm, I, I'm excited because I, <laughs> I think everyone should be excited. about I, I mean, it. really, my kids have needed this just because I they learn differently, and it's interesting. I learn differently, um, and if you don't, if you if you're not careful with it, then you turn people off of learning, or you impact their self esteem or their their own drive, their own desire to own their own learning. Exactly. So, um, you know, it's all about, let me just say that when you recognize and have conversations with learners about their learning, um, you're really validating them as a learner. Um, we all learn differently, and, uh, and it's okay, uh, for sure. And we really are all in it together. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of... Um, you know, kids often don't understand that some other child may learn differently and that it's okay to learn in a different way. And, um, and I think you develop a, can develop a real culture of respect among all learners when you are personalizing learning. 
So what um, what's the downside to this? What what are the arguments against personalized learning? Well, there's not a lot of arguments against it. It's just that um, some of the um, concerns that sometimes teachers have is, geez, how do I do this with a whole class? Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, you know, I'm a high school teacher and I have four classes and um, and so. We met up with a wonderful educator a couple of months ago uh, in our course. We give a course called the Five W's of Personalized Learning, and um, he basically tried that out in his math class. Really good, each and every learner, uh, and he spent the time um, understanding who their lear- who the learners were. You right. Know? And uh, he said it made all the difference in the world. Just the feedback from the kids saying, "Geez, you know, you know, one teacher that really cares about how we learn," um, and. Uh, taking the time to do that is really important. So we consult, consult with lots of schools and school districts and about this and I know how you would go about doing this. And um, one of the important things is that, you know, we have obviously a process in place on how you do this. But the thing is take the first couple of weeks of the school year um, and really get to know who your learners are. Really invest that time just with your learners. Um, don't think about the curriculum so much. Have those conversations and build a culture in your classroom where of respect and trust to begin with, because it, that will go miles the rest of the year. Um, if it's in the big, you know, in the middle of the year, really do take that time. And I know teachers are bound by curriculum, so you know it's interesting. I, as even as you're saying that, I'm thinking, um, I'm thinking of as uh, of the typical image of a teacher is a teacher in front of a classroom, but this model is more of a teacher sitting next to a student, a learner. Uh, yeah. I mean, I mean it it, it's and, almost like because uh, you've got to get down, like you're saying, down to that learner level. You've got to find out what's in their head. I mean, then right. it seems like you could break people into groups, uh, exactly. even learning groups, and then, you know, kind of go from there. Yeah, so because the thing is we do learn from each other. Yeah, so right. Maybe, maybe this learner likes to work in a group. Maybe mm-hmm. this child even likes to lead in a group. Um, you don't know any of those things about a child. Those are the things that's really important when you're doing that profile. And just remember that the teacher's not doing that profile. It's really the learners that are doing that. Hmm. And really that's where that conversation begins um, and knowing who they are and how they learn best. And, yes, if you have so if you have challenges, let's sort of set some learning goals and, and, and really set some steps on achieving a goal on things that you may find difficult. And what the greatest thing is, is that sometimes that challenge can actually turn into a strength in the end Yeah. Um, by doing that. But the thing is, is we need to help kids develop skills for themselves so they can be more self-directed, independent. That really is the mantra that has to sort of go on in, in a teacher's mind, is that how do I help this learner to well, become more independent? Imagine parent-teacher conference where much of the discussion is about the learning approach of their child and what, what works, what isn't working, what – and I mean, instead of just grades – yeah. And, and grades and even goals, what if we focused on how they learn and what we're learning about how they learn and reinforcing that and then showing how to reinforce it at home, how we're going to work on it at school. Man, by exactly. the time they're out of sixth grade, yeah. they could know so much about how they approach the world. Yeah, and the thing is, is that they never are ever asked about how they learn. Right. You know, isn't that strange? It's that so strange. Schools, we never ever ask kids how they learn best. And <laughs> And we don't. We just basically jump into the curriculum and just teach away, and 
and have no clue who the kids are in the classroom and how they learn best. And you wonder why some kids, you know, are struggling and some kids are just, you know, going along. Uh, every kid needs to be able to move, okay, um, and achieve, okay, uh, academic skills. And um, and I see this, all of this, really working extremely well in public schools. And it's actually happening in a lot of public schools. Well, and it might bring more peace to the teachers that um, – I have a sister that's a school teacher, and she's frustrated beyond belief about yeah. the inability to actually – help the kids where they are because of the testing and the expectations. And she just knows she's leaving a wake of kids. And she's trying not to, but the system was not ideal for the learner. Exactly. So, you know, a lot of times people ask us, well, how do you get started and everything? So one of the important things is to bring all the stakeholders together. You know, you need to bring in parents and community. You need to bring in business. You need to bring in the learners Okay, and have a conversation about really what your vision is uh, in your school, really what you want to do there. And then you need to really create a set of beliefs around learning. What do we want learners to be able to do in our community? What do we want them to be able to do? And then when you get that buy-in, then that really just sort of ignites it, you see. And then it's the real hard work, okay, in the classroom. But, you know, with your, you know, with your... um, sister being a teacher and everything, and I, I mean, I've taught in the class for many years, is that we need to give the learning back to the learner, okay, and let them own it. it. You know, it's strange that we make the teacher responsible for the learning and not the kids. Yeah. Oh, it's so true. It really <laughs> is. And, and man, and just seeing how it would impact my own kids, because um, yeah. eventually they're going to have to be responsible for it. Let's not yeah. wait till they're 18, 19, 20. <laughs> To exactly. say, okay, now it's yours. Oh yeah, now it's now, now you're entirely responsible. <laughs> of course, I've I've skewed the entire thing for the last twenty years. Now it's your turn. Yeah, it's <laughs> right. so interesting, um, Kathleen. As we wrap up, what would you say, just as kind of the average parent out there that's listening, what could they do? I mean, to me, it seems like it'd be a great place to start with your book, but you wouldn't probably say that. But make learning personal is the name of the book. But what should the rest of us do today with our children, whatever stage they're in, to kind of empower them to get them the skills to be self-directed? Well. One of the things that we definitely want to be able to do is to work with kids in setting, you know, very specific goals. I think goal setting is very important. Um, and in goal setting around, again, around learning skills, goal setting around uh, citizenship. I mean, how do I yeah. contribute to the world? Uh, goals around college and career and just working on goals and then having them saying, you know, I really want to learn how to do X. Kids will tell you how, what they want to learn a lot of the times. Well, how do you get there? So let's think about some action steps to get there. The whole concept of goal setting is so important for kids if you're a parent. And, uh, and, and getting there is, is, is wonderful because the journey is incredible when you actually achieve a goal. Mm. Um, I mean, and, and, yeah, think of that. You set a goal with your, your fourth grader or third grader. And then you help them through their own initiative realize the goal. You've just taught them probably the most important lesson of life. Right. You can have a goal and you can achieve it and you're doing it by third grade or second grade or first grade. Exactly. Yeah. Powerful stuff. Kids want to – I mean no matter really what background, kids really want want to be successful. They want to feel good about who they are. 
so, um, and, you know, that goal setting, you know, certainly could be done with the teacher, too, and so that we have what's called a, and by the way, in our, I'm going to give a picture on our next book. It's going to be How to Personalize Learning. Hmm. It's going to be an educator's uh, field guide uh, to getting started, but it would be empowering for also for parents because we're going to outline the whole we're going to outline this whole concept of the personal learner profile and the personal learning plan and really get people to understand what that all means and how to do that. I love um, it. And the book is actually going to have a companion website. So so, um, so it's going to, it's going to be loaded with tools and, yeah. uh, and, and everything yeah, we know, need. And we actually put out um, a lot of good uh, information, and people can sign up on our site for our newsletter and our insights bulletin on personalized learning, and that would be beneficial to both parents and teachers. Um, and people find that invaluable information to learn more and more about personalized learning. Now, it's a great site. Again, the website's uh, personalizedlearning.com, personalizedlearning.com. Kathleen McClaskey, thank you so much for your insight. We'll be sure to have you back soon to uh, to get more skills and tools. Oh, absolutely. Come Invite me back when we have our new book yeah. in the Okay. We'll do it for sure, Kathleen. Thank you so much. Uh, keep up the great battle there. Honestly, let's change this thing and uh, give our kids a whole different um, set of responsibility for their own life. How cool would that be for your child to really know how they learn? That is, I'm telling you, that's a gold mine. Um, we'll take a break, folks. Come back, continue the discussion on the other side of the break, this is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, uh, having had just a week off, to do nothing but lounge and hang with my family and kids and go swimming and play tennis. We also watched a lot of television. Holy cow. I'm telling you, there's there's no end to the TV watching hundreds now. 500 plus is what I'm hearing. Um, scripted television shows. Is that right, Jeffrey? Yeah, I believe so. You've watched uh, 400 and how many of them? <laughs> 450. Fifteen of them? I watched maybe two. No, come on. Yes. Now, come on. Come on. Yeah. yeah. We, uh, <laughs> we started two or three new series, and I'm not going to name names, but... Um, Fargo, Breaking Bad. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And The Real Housewives of yeah, Orange County. Yeah, no, yeah, no. Yeah. Anyway, there's no end to it. So we decided to have Leanna Tan. One of our great producers get into this. She said the New York Daily News says that the average American watches about five hours of TV a day. Other studies say 28 hours a week. Whatever it is, Americans watch a lot of it. And there are millions of things that need to be done in a day. So why do Americans decide to spend their time staring at a screen? Well, Leanna Tan gets to the bottom of it. It's really busy sometimes. You know, sometimes I hear my coworkers or classmates talking about all these TV shows, pop culture references, and I just don't get them anymore. It's like I remember those times when I used to watch TV episode after episode and when I would get those references and kind of have an idea of what was going on in the world of pop culture. But that all seems like a distant memory now. 
Once I got out of high school, time was of the essence. I was scrambling to get assignments done, learning how to pay rent, how to shop for my own groceries, and still try to find time to spend with my friends. So I never really found time or made time to watch TV. Now it's been several years, and I've kind of forgotten the appeal to it. Some people say this is the golden age for TV. There's a wide variety of shows to choose from, and Americans watch an average of 28 hours of TV a week. Wow. I don't feel like I can relate to that at all. I just don't understand anymore. I read article after article about how Americans are obsessed with Netflix, binge-watching, and reality TV. So... I decided it's time that I rediscovered what this infatuation with television is all about and decided to bring in a well-versed TV-watching connoisseur, my friend, Annie Davis. How many shows do you currently watch? I think I could probably name 10 off the top of my head. New Girl, The Path, The Mindy Project, Keeping Up with the Kardashians, Empire, Harlot, Criminal Minds, Scandal, Once Upon a Time, How to Get Away with Murder. I think that's 10. Wow. You have an addiction. (laughs) I do. What is the appeal to watching TV for you? I just love stories. I just think it allows you to get to know other people's perspectives. There's that part of it. And then there's also the escape. Like I struggle with anxiety and panic a lot. And so sometimes books, it's too active still. Like my brain still has to like focus on the words. And so sometimes TV is just the best way to not be Annie for a little while. When do you find time to do this? I just don't sleep a lot. I do multitask a lot. Yeah, I eat while I watch TV, cleaning my room. I'll like have a show. Kind of the cliche saying like if something's a priority, you'll make time for it. And I Again, as embarrassing as it is to admit, TV and music and art and books, like those are priorities to me. Keeping up on cultural references and being culturally literate is something I take a lot of pride in. So what will you not watch? I actually don't really like reality TV at all. The only reality TV show that I watch is Keeping Up with the Kardashians because people have these like vitriol reactions to the Kardashians. Either they love them and they're obsessed with them or people hate them and they think they're like the scum of the earth. And I just want to understand why. Why do you hate reality TV? To call it reality TV leaves an implicit message that it actually represents reality. And I think that's a really dangerous notion to get into when you're talking about TV because even quote reality TV isn't reality. It's scripted. It's staged. It's easy when you're watching a TV show that's not presenting itself as reality to separate that from your everyday life and the way that you go about interacting with people or the expectations you have for your life. But once you start to call it reality TV, I think the fantasies and the falsehoods that are presented in television start to seep into your real life because you're allowing real life and televised life to be equivalent. How does watching so much TV affect your social life? I never prioritize TV over social engagements. That's the great part about having Hulu or having Netflix is that it's always there for you when you do have that spare minute alone that you want to watch it. What are your dreams and ambitions and how has watching TV influenced these ambitions and dreams? I think watching TV has opened my eyes to a lot of different things that are out there in the world that you can do. Like jobs that I might not have ever heard of. For example, The Office. It's about paper salesmen. And how many of us actually throughout our lives think about the people who sit in cubicles day in, day out and sell paper. Those are jobs that we just don't think about. And then it forces you to like look into things that maybe otherwise you might not have been exposed to or might not have ever believed that you can do. 
I think we're seeing a huge movement in diversity and gender diversity in TV shows that are offering images to young people of people they could relate to, people they can see themselves in, doing jobs they might not otherwise have thought worthwhile to do. Do you have any advice for fellow TV watchers or those who don't watch TV? I do think everyone needs to watch The Office and Parks and Rec in full. If you're going to watch Parks and Rec and you didn't like season one, start with season two. My biggest advice would be like always be aware of the messages you're getting from the TV you're watching. Also be willing to turn it off if you don't like it. Huh, I guess I do kind of remember now. The times where I felt like I was escaping my reality for a minute and falling in love with fictional places, lives, and characters. I guess TV watching isn't always a bad thing. But like Annie said, if you're going to spend 28 hours of your life a week watching that, you'd better be aware of the messages you're consuming. Well, happy TV watching, everyone. I'm Leanna Tan, and that's my little tangent. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Good to be with you. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Today, no exception. Back from spring break. I've got a nice tan going now, and uh, my tennis game improved dramatically. So good to be back with you two. You need some sun, both of you. Yeah. and We have, uh, we have, we have lighting in the studio. Yeah. It's funny when when I'm away, I'll I come back and then I just start getting all these notices, these memos from the people upstairs mm. about you two. Yeah, just the cats away, the mice play. Apparently, you're a cat. Oh yeah, I'm a cool cat. <laughs> <laughs> Meow. Uh, we'll talk about it at our meeting. Mm. Our team meeting. It'll be great. Yeah, it's going to be a good meeting. Um, good to be back with everybody. We've got a great show um, today. Of course, Kim Giles will be joining us talking about uh, the platinum rule in marriage. Not the golden rule. Right. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. The platinum rule. We'll find out what that is. Isn't it she's always right? What, mama's always right? Yeah. Uh, well, that's that's kind of just the hidden subtle rule. Okay. Just Yeah. yeah. But she's not always right. Uh, it usually works out if you just sort of defer to. Her. Oh, but see, I bet she hates to think that you think that. Well, occasionally I'll point things out that no, that's not correct. If it's going to go somewhere bad, but most of the time it's you know yeah. who cares. Yeah, sure, whatever. Let's do that. Well, yeah, most of the time it just doesn't matter. Then she's like, "I want someone more fully participating in this relationship." And you're like, <laughs> "Oh, get off my back." Okay, so it her. does matter. Sorry. <laughs> okay. I don't Wait. Know so we... she's exploring other options. No, just just this idea that uh, you know she she you know you want to go to a restaurant, but I'm not going to pick because I don't pick. know. Well, you should care enough. Because you need to pick. I go, why I don't, don't know? Why just, don't you know though? That's the problem. Just because if I you don't cared, want you to would know. know. That's the other thing. It doesn't exactly matter. <laughs> it's just food. It's just food. Hey, uh, happy golfers' day as well. Ooh, great shot! Great shot, Jeffrey. Yeah, he's picked up his golf game since I left. Looks good. Wonderful. Now I know what you guys have been doing. I I don't know. I feel like it's going the other way. I'm now I'm getting a five instead of a six. No no no. Yeah, you got to keep those scores up, at least until we play tonight. That'll be good. Good dinner. Pick pick a place you want to eat, Terry, because I have a feeling 
It's going to be an easy mill to win tonight. Jeffrey, you still going to get that really high score? Ten per hole. That's what you're looking for. Ten per If hole. I'm lucky. Uh, a solid 180. <laughs> yeah, solid that's a, 180. That's a good score. We'll get to the fun uh, golf score. Of course, we'll also be visiting with our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. We'll do a hero of the day. And, uh, of course, some more empty news. Just some news that you didn't even know you needed to know, but now you know. Did you know that? Did you know? Before we get to the empty news, let's get to the real news with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? Trump cabinet members are cautioning Russia to reconsider their relationship with President Bashar al-Assad in the wake of the Syrian chemical attacks that killed more than 80 people last week, most of them civilians. National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster said on Sunday on Fox News, I think we should, uh, what I think we should do is, a- is ask Russia, how could it be if you have advisors at that airfield that you didn't know that the Syrian Air Force was preparing and executing a mass murder attack with chemical weapons? On ABC... Uh, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson said, I hope Russia is thinking carefully about its continued alliance with al-Assad because every time one of these horrific attacks occurs, it draws Russia closer into some sort of level of responsibility. Mm. Tillerson is set to visit Moscow this week. One report I read earlier this morning said uh, there was a meeting planned between Vladimir Putin and Tillerson that has now been canceled. Ah, boy. Not sure what that means. Maybe they're going to reschedule. Yeah, that's it. Just down the week a little. More than 150 police officers are searching for a Wisconsin man who allegedly stole 16 high-caliber rifles and handguns from a store and mailed an anti-government manifesto to President Trump. Oh, boy. Love the manifesto. It's always a sign of of good things. Police say Joseph uh, Jubakowski. Who? J-A-K-U-B-O-W-S-K-I. Jubakowski. 32. Should be considered armed and dangerous. Has a bulletproof vest and helmet in his possession. Churches throughout Wisconsin were on high alert over the weekend as his alleged manifesto expressed anti-religious sentiment. Basically, he's angry at all government officials, said the sheriff's department. Whether it's the president, whether it's local officers, whether it's law enforcement, he has a dislike for anyone that has authority or governmental power. Wow. And he has guns. And a manifesto. And some bulletproof clothing. So, yeah. Aren't, is it, aren't Those people in government are the ones that are allowing him to retain those arms, though. At right? times. At times, yeah. yeah. But the government doesn't have a right to do anything with arms. It's a human right. I don't know. We'll see. Just uh, throwing that out there. Another story here. The Oregon legislature may have an unusual request for voters in the next election that harkens back to the day, that fateful day in 1804, when a bitter rivalry between Vice President Aaron Burr and the nation's first secretary or treasury, the secretary oh, yeah. Alexander Hamilton, was settled with a fatal gunshot. Should ongoing discussions in Salem, Oregon materialize, voters would see a question on their next general election ballots asking if a 172-year-old ban on dueling by public officials, as in the old-fashioned way of resolving fights, should be erased from the Oregon Constitution. Oh, wow. They have a law that says you cannot, public officials cannot participate in a duel. I think there's a lot of people that wishes our public officials did more dueling. So the law... Was this? Let's see. The article was signed in 1845. Wow! Yeah, uh, 15 years before Oregon even became a state. Burr and Hamilton just had to go and ruin it for everybody else. Burr and Hamilton isn't that a law firm out of uh, Santa Barbara? No, that's Burr Hamilton and Leibowitz. Oh, that's good. So, should they have dueling? Yes. Should that be legal? No, they're not. But making not with it, real bullets. They're not making it legal. They're just not making it illegal. I think they just. I think they should. 
but they ought to have it with tasers or something okay. less lethal. But right. that we, and then I think they ought to show it on TV and settle scores. Mace, ah, oh, a mace off. Mm. That, I think that was a movie. You, you have good uh, good range with those mace bottles. But so. don't you think that would really be great entertainment? Two people, maybe right now, you'd have uh, Rand Paul mm-hmm. and McCain right. go duel. Yeah. Now, my money, even though he's an older gentleman, mm-hmm. is on John McCain. Well, he has training at some yeah. point in his life. That guy's got some training. But Rand Paul's from what, Kentucky? But we're not going to use lethal weapons. We're just going to use some painful, mm. legal, slingshots? non-lethal weapon. Those wrist rocket slingshots? Yeah, maybe just... just paint guns. Okay, paint balls. Do you yeah, remember yeah. that show, Celebrity Deathmatch? The Claymation yeah, one? Yeah, yeah, that was really good. That was a great show. <laughs> and finally, about 50 soon-to-be chick babysitters gathered in a small barn north of Omaha, Nebraska, Saturday morning to learn about how to feed chicks. Chicks? Like, like baby chickens? Baby chickens. Okay. And how to let them safely roam outside and how to you know take care of them, basically. It goes on to be graphically... Chick-sitters? Yeah. And then, one by one, the families took their cardboard boxes up to the chicken pen and received two cute, fuzzy, two-day-old birds as part of the this farm's Rent-A-Chick program. So instead of buying a cute Easter chick and that grows up to be a large clucking chicken, the families yeah. can pay 25 to $35, take two little ones home for about two weeks, and then they return them to the farm. Well, supposedly. Because they have this problem where people buy bunnies or little chicks because they think it's a yeah, fun Easter no, gift. Yeah, no. And then you just either abandon it or you take it to the pound or something. And it's like they take it back to the farm. It's, you just have it for the moment and take it back. I like – that's a, a rent a chick. That's uh, that's probably already a business. It's the third year this farm else. in Omaha has offered this program. Yeah. This <laughs> is a, chick. a farm program. Yeah. Farmers are putting uh, chicks on pizzas, too. Peeps. As we, oh, peeps. Oh, really? That's right. Yeah. yeah not so chicks. not real chicks. And it's not really a farmer. It's just some kid with some peeps. Um, I'm sorry I missed that story. That was last week, yeah. It sounds like a really good one. Not really. <laughs> Kind of sugary with a pizza mixed So in. I'm thinking about a new health regimen. Don't you do this like every week? A new one. This is a new one. I know, but you come in and, oh, we're going to try this one. Oh, we're going to do this. Now no, I'm this walking. Is, now I'm running, I'm running. And then like two days later, I hate myself. I hurt. It, this is one, but this is one that would help with the hurt. What's Is that? this the TV binging regimen that you just no. tried out this last week? No. Is it more stretching okay. and yoga? No, none no. of that. It's um, hot bath. Apparently, a hot bath burns as many calories as a 30-minute walk. Nice. So why not, right? The new study um, has given a lot of people hope that instead of working out, maybe you just get a hot bath. A hot bath feels good. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, many have believed that it, it's, it's uh, going to burn calories because you get so, your body is so heat, right. heated up. So Dr. Faulkner used 14 men in his study and learned that one hour in a hot bath would burn on average approximately 140 calories per hour. Oh, there you go. You're percolating. Hold on. It's a weird is, – is it boiling? Well, you said a hot bath, right? Well, not, yeah, but that's boiling water. Well, do you want the health benefit or do you want to feel comfortable? Come on. Not only did the hot baths burn calories, but the peak blood sugar, uh, the peak blood sugar of the study participants were lowered approximately ten percent more than working out lowered their blood sugar levels. Hmm. 
The passive heating study needs to be studied further, so the study needs more study. You do have to stand up and shower afterwards. Really? Yeah. I mean, you're just kind of sitting in the But you, water. Could, you could get bubbles. Yeah. Jeff was just making some bubbles right there. Um, you can also listen to music. Right. And then when you're done, you stand up, take a shower. Or you can watch out. TV if you wanted you the TV. You could bring a TV, yeah. Uh-huh. Don't do what the guy did in Australia, and he, bra- he dragged in his iPhone, and then he... Charged it up that way and electrocuted himself. Don't do that. Ooh, yeah, that seems like a no-brainer. No, you get one that. of those iPad stands. Mm. Mm-hmm. I've got one. I'm going to get one that, like, tapes to my head. So it just kind of like it's like a visor, but then it flips down. And then you can just watch it oh, right there. There you go. You know? Yeah, this is my new – don't you think this is healthier than working out? And you're no. not gonna you're not gonna hurt yourself. I mean, I guess a lot of people do fall in you the can bathtub. Slip and fall, yeah. It's probably the most common fall in the bathroom, right? But if you drain it, if you're careful, if you have one of those mats that you can step on with good grip, just shower after so you're clean. I think yeah. maybe for you, you might want to get one of those tubs that you can just walk into. Yeah, I saw one of those on the airplane. Right. I was going through a magazine, and now the tricky part of those is you have to open the door, yeah. get in, then fill it up. Yeah, then you got like a 20-minute wait. Right. So if you fill it up and then open the door, there's a problem while the water runs out. That's so a you, great point. You got to make sure the door's shut, get in, and then fill it up. It takes longer. But I was noticing that, you know what, it looks very nice. Right. Because it also has jets to massage your back, mm. and you're in a seated position, so you're not. it's not as hard to get in and out of. So it's basically it's like a, a, a sauna filled with water because yeah. you're sitting down. I don't like to think of it as like a sauna filled with water. I like to think of it as a treadmill that you don't run on. Mm. You so just sit and boil in it. A treadmill minus the exercising and health benefits. Yeah, and the treadmill. A lot of people – my mom used to call it a tub. A tub. Yeah. Get in the tub. Standing tub. Good times. Hey, uh, crazy story. A horse was rescued after falling into a hole in California. Yeah. I saw pictures of this. Authorities say the horse returning from a run to Taco Bell. Why not? Why not? Escaped serious injury after falling into a five-foot-deep hole in Southern Cal. uh, Fire officials say the saddled horse and its rider had just left a Taco Bell, I guess, drive-through? I hope so. (laughs) You didn't go inside to get Wow. What better way to run for the border? This was a run for the border. Wait, this is a, a this is a Wendy's? Taco Bell. Is that the new hmm. Joquero Taco Bell? Hmm. That's great. Uh, this was in Riverside on Saturday though, when it fell into the entrance of a utility access tunnel. Yikes. Like a manhole, basically. Just yeah. Sort of fell in. But holy cow. Battalion yeah. Chief Jeff Delari says a crane was initially requested to haul the horse from the vault, but it wasn't needed. The animal managed to position itself so the crews could pull it out using ropes. Hmm. The veteran says the horse suffered minor cuts to its legs. Delari says it's unusual to see a horse in that part of the inland city with about <laughs> 300,000 people. We don't usually get them horses down here in the big city. Scary. See, the only complication with taking the horse to Taco Bell is if the drive-thru has an overhang, right? Then the yeah. rider's got a duck yeah. and it's uncomfortable. Or take your hat off. But a lot of them nowadays don't have that, so you're able to stay. Right, you're yeah. fine. Yeah. And Sit tall in the saddle when yeah. you get your Because ca- a real cowboy wouldn't take his hat off. No. 
No. Notice that they didn't say it's not unusual uh, for this guy to come to Taco Bell with his horse. But it is unusual to see him in that other Yeah, that's weird. Like nobody's batting an eye that he went to Taco Bell on his horse. We'll question him in the city. Yeah. But in the city, we don't usually have them, even though we have a lot of Taco Bells. Huh. Weird. Yeah. I never associated Taco Bell with a horse. I think it's I think it's the approved method of transportation. Isn't that where they get their meat? Wow. You're going to go there. No, I'm serious. Hmm. Well, we probably ought to take a break. Wait for Don to come in. <laughs> so, wait. Yeah. I crossed the line with that comment, and yet we can use horses for glue? Who said that? Hmm. You crossed the line twice. Boy, Jeff. I'm disappointed. <sighs> Sorry, everybody. Jeff went dark on us. Apparently, doesn't like Taco Bell or horses. We'll take a break. We'll be back when we come back. Kim Giles will be joining us talking the platinum rule in marriage. Stick with us. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, uh, you know, it's one of our, it's time for one of our favorite uh, friends of the show. Kim Giles joins us from Clarity Point Coaching. Uh, she is a life coach, an author, a speaker, named one of the top 20 advice gurus in the country. Um, you can find out more about her at her website, claritypointcoaching.com. And today she's talking to us about an article she wrote titled The Platinum Rule in Marriage. Kim, welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks, Matt. Happy to be here. Good to have you. Now, now okay, so go through the rules. What are the rules? Uh, the, the, we always hear about the golden rule, but how is the platinum rule different? Well, we, we all experience love and validation we, we, in a different way. and We have different fears and we have different values, and we tend to treat other people the way we want to be treated. The golden rule comes a lot more naturally to most of us. Because I know I would like that, so I'm going to do that with my spouse. And, and I think that they're, they're going to get that and feel loved by that, but it doesn't always work. They're so different from you that your, your acts of service or your validation might fall flat because it's not how they experience love. No, exactly. No, I, in fact, and, and that makes sense, right? So you, you got to figure out them. We can't just assume how we like it, how we want it is how they're going to like it and want it. We have to get into them. We do. So we've got to get to know them at a different level. And it's funny to me how often I work with couples that have been together for years and years, maybe 20, 30 years, and they've really never asked the questions to really find out what their spouse's love language is and and how they what they can do to really make their spouse feel loved and appreciated um I, it's crazy that we don't think of asking that right. but i see it all the time do you see it oh all the time and but i guess part of it is i mean i've even felt like many times we and i think this is human nature we always make assumptions about others but it seems like it's even easier to make those assumptions the longer you're with someone. 
Like just more and more we just kind of incorporate them into who we think – who we are. Like we just take over who they are. We just absorb them. I'm sure you hear this too from couples that have been together for ages and one of them finally says, I want a divorce. I want out. And the other is, wait a minute. I didn't even know anything was wrong. It's not even that bad. Yeah, no, I hear that. I thought we were good. I hear that all the time. Is it um, so? When we think about this, though, I mean, it's one thing to try to understand somebody, but I guess so. How do we go about doing that? How do we figure out what they really want, who they really are? Okay, so we go at this a little bit different at Clarity Point Coaching. We've actually come up with these 12 profiles that every one of us fits into and and your psychological inclination is really based on what you value and what you fear so we spend a lot of time with our clients helping them recognize what they value now a lot of people value people right and really that's that's their currency that's what they're invested in it's all about friendships and connection and wanting to spend time with people. They don't like to be alone. They like to be with the people they love. They, they love deep conversation, not just you know surface stuff, but really want to connect with people. And that's their love language. Everything to them is about my connection, my time spent with you. So maybe you or your spouse might be that kind of person. Or... Maybe your spouse or you is more of a task-focused person. Now, task-focused, I know well because that's what I am. And, and really, I hit the floor every morning with that to-do list in mind and all these things that need to get done, and I almost can't relax hmm. or, or let down and feel safe until all that to-do list has been taken care of. And, and so my husband's been able to recognize if he wants to spend quality time with me, he's first got to help me get all these tasks done so that I can kind of let that go and really give him my attention. And if he really wants to make me happy, he'll wash the dishes. Yeah. I mean, I, there's nothing sexier in the world, Matt, than a man washing the dishes. Really? <laughs> you ask any woman. <laughs> that is so strange. I mean, yeah, not, uh, yeah that, but I guess I can see, if you, especially if you're into tasks, right? If that's if that's what you really value, then that's an amazing way to show me you love me. Hmm. Now, others of us are more we we're more valuing the physical things in the world. So really, we like gifts. We like you to you know help us buy things that that we really want. Help us save the money or or earn the money to to be able to have the things in our world that make us feel safe. And if if you're married to a spender who spends all the money but doesn't save up to help you have things that are really important to you, that could be a big problem in your relationship. Mm. So we have to spend some time and kind of figure out what's important to our spouse. And then um, – because what I'm going to bet is it, what what is important to them and what they prioritize as one may not be your number one. It may be your number three. Mm. And so then all of a sudden, I guess you're stuck with – and that, that, that I always have clients say, well, uh, I guess I chose the wrong person. But the reality of life is most of the time you're not going to marry someone that's like you. Yeah, and, and it's not that you chose the wrong person. It's no matter who you chose, they're going to be different from you. Yeah. So we, we've got to get to know each other. Now, there's one more level 
you may have married someone that's ideas focused. Now these folks really want to be heard about their ideas. They also really like to be right. And so they can get in a lot of conflict and arguments if, if you don't agree or at least don't validate and honor respect their right to think and feel the way they do. But their currency is really being willing to listen to all of their ideas and beliefs and and pay attention to how they think things should be done. Hmm. So maybe my idea about how the dishwasher should be loaded properly is something I really value. And so my spouse not only needs to help me with the dishes, but he needs to do it correctly. Because until I get it done correct, it's going to be a stress and it's going to get in the way of my ability to connect. So what drives us value when we talk about these, what drives us? I mean, are people just born people, people or task people or thing people, or is this just how we've become socialized? Well, you know, there's a big argument about nurture versus nature, right? Right. We, We really do believe a lot of it you're born with. I've noticed with my seven children, they came out to a large degree being the way they are. And, and you know, my poor children were born into a very task-focused family with parents that are really get-it-done folks. But we got some children that are not like that. Hmm. And and I remember one day explaining to my my daughter, if I was in your shoes, I would do this and this and this. She said, Mom, I'm not you. I'm not like you. And And you assume that your way is the only way or the right way. And so we do this not only to our spouse, but we also do this to our children. Oh, yeah. Well, and then all of a sudden, that's probably where the tension is, right? The fight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we can have a lot of conflict in those relationships when we don't honor and respect who they are and what's important to them and the way they function in the world. Yeah. So, so I guess once we figure this out and identify – which uh, you know, which of these approaches we like? You also mentioned that it's not just what we value; it's what we fear. Yeah. That, okay. This is the second level of it. So first, figure out what they value, and then we want to figure out what their core fear is. And there are basically two core fears that every person on the planet does battle with to some degree every day. But most of us learned through our life experiences, and this is where I kind of think the nurture comes in. We've had life experiences that have kind of created more of a core fear trigger around one of those. So some of us are really fear of failure programmed. And, And early on, we had a hard time getting approval from friends or parents. And, and so this fear that I might not be good enough became really a big, big thing playing out in our subconscious mind. And and that's now really affecting the way we show up in the world all the time. As a matter of fact, it, it drives a large percentage of your behavior. Even a lot of the nice, good things you do, you're doing them so that you'll get validation and approval from other people, which will quiet your fear that you're not good enough. Mm, yeah. So you really need to know if your spouse has a huge fear of not being good enough, I guarantee that anything you say or do that could be taken as criticism or an insult is going to trigger some really bad stuff in, in your spouse. And that, that fear is going to play into every conversation that you have with them. Right. 
That's so, amazing. So, so then, so what's the other fear? Okay, so the other core fear is fear of loss. And really, it's the fear of anything that takes away from the quality of my life or makes me feel taken from or mistreated, gypped on any level. So people who have a lot of fear of loss can become very controlling. They need to control every situation. They need to have everything the way they need it because it's the only way they feel safe. They actually feel threatened when they don't have control over a situation. Mm. Now that again, that's going to cause a lot of conflict in your relationship. Right. And, and I even have some couples who both have that. And so they both really want to be the one in charge and in control in every situation. And, and that leads to a lot of contention in their relationship. So once you know which core fear is in play with your spouse, then you know what they need. What they need more than anything else is for you to help become the cure to that fear. So do we have time to go into yeah, that? No, let's do this. Let's come back and figure out how to do the cure to the fear. Um, we'll continue the discussion with Kim Giles. We're talking about the platinum rule in your marriage. And at, at work, we're trying to figure out, number one, what our partner values, and number two, what they fear. And then together we'll put this... Uh, in some kind of grid, some chart to help us understand how to approach our spouse differently. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends. Today we are talking with Kim Giles about uh, how to really reach out and connect with your partner their way, living the platinum rule with them. Today she's been teaching us that we need to figure out what our partners value. Are they more people, task, thing, or idea-oriented? And we need to figure out what they fear. Do they fear failure? Do they fear loss? And uh, Kim, so once we kind of understand that, we understand more what they value um, and what they fear, how do we know what to do then? Okay, so either in my article on ksl.com this morning or you can go to my website, look up the psychological inclinations. Once you know what they fear and what they value and do it for yourself also, figure out what you fear and you value, you can go to our chart and it'll show you the, the psychological inclination state that you play in. So I'm going to give you an example. I'm task-focused, and I have more fear of not being good enough, more fear of failure. So that makes me a producer. Hmm. And my husband, bless his heart, is more people-focused, but he also has fear of not being good enough, so he's an affectionate. And once you kind of know what you both are, this is going to make very clear the one fight that you always have. And don't you find that that in your work also? It's really just the same fight over and over. So the fight that we always have is my husband saying, babe, you work too hard. You're always working, and I want some time with you. I want you to spend time with me and not always focused on all these tasks. And when I hear that, I hear... You're not doing good enough. You're not being a good enough wife. And it triggers that fear that I'm not good enough, which actually makes me pull away from him more because he's not my safe place. He's, he's a place that's making me feel worse about myself. Right. 
So I actually pull back, which which triggers more fear of failure in him that his wife doesn't want to spend time with him. And, and it creates just this vicious cycle that goes around and around. And we've always thought that the cure is to show up for them, right, and make them feel loved. But I do that by doing tasks for him. Right. And he doesn't and even really see that as love. means nothing to him, right? Right. And, and he wants to just spend time with me and hug me and cuddle me. And to be honest, that is, I, I can handle five minutes of cuddling, and then I've got things to do. Yeah, let's get going. <laughs> yeah, so, we, so we've really had to learn how to become the cure to each other's core fear. So get this. My husband has figured out the way to get my love is to comment all the time on how amazingly productive I am. Hmm. And he tells me, you just kill it, babe. I can't believe all you get done. You're so successful. You're going to do so well. Look at how amazing you are and how hard you work. Now, that's a big leap from complaining that I worked too much a few minutes ago. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Now you're not complaining. Yeah. He's actually being the cure to my core fear of failure and of of not doing well enough. And the more he tells me that, how amazing I am, the more I want to spend more time with him mm. because he's the cure to my fear. And, and I've realized with him that if I can get out of my stuff and really show up and spend some time cuddling and giving him physical affection every day, it fills up his bucket and he has even more to give me. And this is what we've got to, we've got to get ourselves on a more positive cycle where I'm being the cure to his core fear and he's being the cure to mine and around and around we go and our marriage is amazing. That's cool. And then I guess, so the key to this really is understanding, right? Understanding what their what their drivers are and their restrainers are and then meeting those needs. And I guess you can do this uh, with anyone really. Oh, Absolutely. You want to you want to figure out your kids so that you know what they need to quiet their fear. Everybody in your life. Now, the one caveat I want to throw in, Matt, is that when we do these things for someone, be it a child or a spouse, we've got to make sure that we're giving those gifts, that validation that I'm I'm giving those hugs and, and hours of affection to my husband with no strings attached. So it can't be that I'm doing those things so that I'll get what I need back. Mm, yeah. Because when you give and, and it's really about you and what you want back, it's not really a gift. And they can tell that, right? They sense that it's not – that there's another motive behind this. Yeah, and it's really about you. It's not really about them. Mm. So I always hear from couples, hey, I started doing that, and, and my wife didn't respond, so forget it. I'm, I'm not going to keep giving to her if I don't get a response back. But you've got to be giving with no strings attached for a little while so that she begins to trust you, that you are really in it to love her and give her a chance to want to give that back to you on her own, which I believe with most people will happen. Don't you think no, totally. most people, as they start to feel that, turn it around? No, on occasion, you get somebody that doesn't. Yeah, and that, I mean, this is, I guess, where you've got the – because then it's about your motive. It's about your intent. Uh, it's about so many other things. Wow, this is this is good stuff, Kim. So they can go to your website, claritypointcoaching.com, and when they get there, they can 
they can look to fill out the um, what's it, the inclinations. Psychological inclinations. Yeah, and, and just take the test, figure it out for yourself. Maybe sit down with your partner, let them figure it out, um, and, and get going and, and make it happen. This is, I think, this is the beginning. I think uh, of a relationship where when when you're really into understanding and assuming that you don't understand, uh, boy, it's the beginning of something powerful. I found in. In relationships and relationship improvement. Good stuff. Go to the website, claritypointcoaching.com. We will take a break, come back, and uh, talk to two of our buddies that we have been uh, building a relationship with over many years Spencer and Jerem from Sports Nation. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Jeff Simpson on the drums, bringing in the beat. And uh, these two guys, they need a beat because nobody has more rhythm and syncopation than these two. Spencer and Jerem. No, Spencer and Jason today. Jason Shepard, Spencer Linton down at BYU Sports Nation. Hello, gentlemen. I was going to correct you immediately and say, no, Jerem has no beat and no rhythm. Yeah. (laughs) Welcome back, by the way. Hey, it's so good to be back. You still work here? I work here. I uh, I took a whole week off. Just you still gonna be doing your show today? I'm gonna do my show today. <laughs> uh, almost done with it, and then I'm gonna hand it over to you guys, and you're gonna do your show. Well, did you hear? Apparently, you didn't because you missed a golden opportunity. I know. On I missed Friday it. with the shaving missed, of the head. I know. You I would have. I would have driven back. I happen to have been getting on an airplane in Vegas to go to Ohio. Or I would have I would have driven back just for that. Yes. Classic excuse, Matt. Oh, uh, I was on a plane to Ohio. That I old would, Vegas to Ohio plane that's the, uh, trick. The famous Vegas plane trick. But I, he. So I'm going to try to get him into that deal again. He like today. I don't know if you guys know this. It's Golfers Day. Okay. And it should be appropriate. And we we're going to play a game. We're we're going to go golfing, Jeff and I after. And I've been teaching him about the scoring of golf. The higher the score, the better the game. And okay. he's and he's he's going to go for the highest score he can get, and well, I see he's you. really going to do well. I know exactly, <laughs> and we're gonna I'm going to see if he'll do the ball if he'll shave his head if he loses, and if not, if he'll just buy me dinner. Okay, is that all right? That sounds sounds good. fair. See, hey, sounds fair. Hey, see? you want your grammar lesson for the day, Matt? Yes, please. I learned this from a guy whose nickname is Mister Fifty Nine. No kidding. His name is Al Guyberger. Wow. He was the first. Man on the PGA Tour to ever shoot a 59 in an actual PGA Tour sanctioned event. Wow. Okay. 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 Al Guyberger. I said to his son, Brian, hey, let's go golfing. And Al looked at me like I had committed high treason. Ooh, you don't go golfing. uh, And he's like, can you golfing? Golfing (laughs) is not a word. You have to play play golf. golf. Just like you can't basketballing or soccering or footballing. See, but we do all four of those things. <laughs> so I don't know what you're talking about. Isn't that interesting? That's such an interesting one. You so can't tennis. You have to play golf. You have to play tennis or play golf or play basketball or play football. So he's uh, like, would you like to rephrase that question? And I was like, uh. Of, uh how, to pl- how to play golf for $500. So then he, yeah, very unsubtly instructed me. And I asked Brian again. Brian, would you like to play golf with me? <laughs> That's great. So we are going to play golf tonight. Yes. And I'm going be to golfing. I will be taking can I take his money? Basketballing. Money, money taking? <laughs> yes, you can take his money. Okay. 
Boy, you know, I don't know that I like Al anymore. <laughs> Al seems kind of like a jerk now. Well, he's not a jerk. He's a he nice just, guy. He's an educator. This is his pet peeve. It's his yeah. one like major pet peeve because it's his sport. Because he done one. You play golf. Yeah. You know, I he hates that as much as I hate hard butter. Pardon? What? <laughs> hard butter's the worst. Tell me somebody that likes hard butter. You mean like frozen butter? Uh, hard butter ruins Perfectly good croissants and oh. pieces of bread. Oh, it rips, the, it rips the toast to it's shreds. It's the worst thing <laughs> ever. <laughs> this is a real pet peeve of yours. Oh, hard butter's the worst. We'll put it under your arm for a minute. <laughs> uh. I guess I could do that. Hey, would you like some arid double X with your hard butter? <laughs> I did not know that this was um, that this was a pet peeve for you. Yeah. Okay. So I'm. So I've got to go. This show is not long enough to go over all my pet peeves. I've got to go heat up the butter. I guess. I've just thought of an idea for the what? summer, Jason. We need to have a pet peeve show. Oh, we. Yes. We need a pet peeve. That would be show. good. You know what I? You know what the the I, I came to a conclusion over the weekend what? Uh, as I was driving on I-15 <laughs> uh, that I am the only non-idiot driver. <laughs> yeah. No. Right. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. Well, I, I'm the only non-idiot driver. Like, like, like our group here. Like, we're the only non-idiot drivers. Exactly. Everyone else are idiots. <laughs> but why don't they get it? Like, it's why obvious. don't they understand how how moronic they are as yeah. drivers, and how not how the complete opposite I am. Yes. How how skilled you are. Yes. Yes. Uh, you're like you're like warm butter. Yeah. You're like soft butter. I'm, I just – I mean there's so many driving situations where I just think, really? Really? Well, this is what we're doing on the freeway right now? Really? Really? Right now you're putting your makeup on? Really? Hey, don't don't come at me that way. <laughs> Sorry, Spencer. <laughs> don't single me out. He can play – he can put his makeup on and drive with his knee. That's exactly. how amazing he exactly is. Exactly, I can. The worst is like when you lose your fries though. And fries are like flying all over the car. That, you know, that's worth living dangerously, driving dangerously. You cannot allow fries to go uneaten. No way. Travesty. Hey, um, you guys still doing your show though, right? Yes. We were waiting for that question because we asked you earlier. Yeah, you did. So what's on your show? (laughs) Uh, Let's start with what happened yesterday at the Masters, Matt Townsend. Okay, yeah. Sergio Garcia, a guy who burst onto the scene when he was 19 years young, and everyone's like, he's going to be the next great thing. 74 trips to the Masters Ugh. later, he finally wins the big one. Wow. It took him more than 18 years That's to such win a great it. lesson. Yeah. Persistence. Resilience. Yep. Persistence. And it got us thinking. What's the next big breakthrough thing for BYU athletics? Like, mm. it can be an athlete, it could be a team, but what's the next breakthrough, getting the monkey off the back, finally type victory for BYU? Why is everybody against the monkey? I don't know. What, I don't know. Is, what is the monkey? I don't know. What did the monkey do to everybody? That's... Well, I think we know if you've been to the zoo, you know what the monkeys do. <laughs> yes. Well, my son just watched a cartoon, my 18-month-old, and the premise of the entire cartoon was, Naughty monkey! <laughs> so, that's great. Great accent, I don't know why, too. but the monkeys, they take a bad rap. That's a great, yes. that's a great question you're asking. Yeah. We're also going to have uh, Lucas Slave, assistant uh, coach for men's volleyball. 
Uh, here's a shocker for you. What? Men's volleyball, uh, they're in the MPSF tournament. Hey! That, that, that happens every year. So uh, they're back again. They play Stanford on Saturday. So we'll get a little preview of the upcoming uh, MPSF tournament with him as well. Man, that's a great show. Of course it is. <laughs> you guys Scoff. are locked and loaded. Scoff. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we are going to go play golf now. Okay. No golfing. Have fun with your showing. Hey, you owe it to yourself to watch the Thor Ragnarok trailer before you go golfing. It will it will help your day immensely. I think I think uh, Terry was just watching that oh. earlier. Oh, it is so good. Settle, Matt, you've got to see it. Settle down. Don't make me get the hose. They've got Led Zeppelin playing in the background. Yeah. This is good. Okay, guys, knock them dead. Have a great show. I'll go uh, I'll go watch that preview. Okay. That trailer. Bye. There, um, see, Jeff. There, they just taught us a great lesson. We are not going golfing. We are going to play golf. Oh! And you are going to shoot the highest score you can possibly shoot. Okay. And then you'll win. Hmm. And then you'll buy my dinner. So every time I, I hit the golf ball, it's called a hit, right? A stroke. Oh. So you're going to stroke out, not to, no, I mean not really stroke out. You're just going to. Don't I get extra points? I think I get extra points for landing in the water. That's yeah. kind of the what you want to shoot yeah, for. Yeah, you'll get you'll get more. Uh huh. You'll get more points. So if you can hit trees, if you can hit it out into the woods where you can't find the ball, if you can lose a ball, that's like worth a lot. Of well, those points. are really hard uh, objects to hit. Oh yeah. They're, they're really but so you, just think of it this way. You don't need you don't like a lot of times you'll see the pros just hit it once and it goes for a mile. They're pros, but they're what a dumb way to play when you could go see the entire course. That's only one point, though. Right. Right. See, they don't get it. But I mean, there's a that's referee good. that's there keeping score, right? Yeah. With us. Or is it? Oh, no, I'm sorry. It's an umpire. There's an umpire there. Yeah. We like to call him um, a, an ump. Yeah. They calls the strikes and the balls. This is going to be a great game. I really think we're going to have a really great night. Uh, so I guess the wager will be, do you want to do the hair wager? So if you lose, um, if you lose. Well, I need to get my feet wet a little first. Well, you will when you're getting your ball out of the lake. Hmm. So, or we could just go for dinner. Let's just play for dinner. Okay. Highest score wins, and then we'll ask. Then we'll just ask the officials how to score. It's gonna be exciting. We'll talk about it tomorrow on the show. Hey, uh, as you know, we always like to end the show with a hero story. The hero story this time is a soccer coach that saves a four-year-old's life at a training session. Listen to this: soccer coach has been hailed as a hero after rushing into action to save a four-year-old's life. Ash Goss, twenty years old from the UK, was hosting. Uh, this weekly football coaching session at a local elementary school when Max Hanford, at the age of four-year-old Max, collapsed after being hit in the stomach with the ball. The experienced coach, who had been working with kids uh, playing football since he was 14, quickly rushed to help. He said, I could see in his eyes there was something wrong, and I went running over to him. The color in his face changed, and I could hear him struggling to breathe. I thought he must have swallowed his tongue, but he is only four years old, so I knew uh, his muscles wouldn't be able to sort it out himself. I put my fingers in his mouth, managed to pull his tongue out. 
and it was slightly a uh, surreal moment, he said. I just reassured him that he was, uh, and kept talking to him through the whole thing. Little Max had tempor- temporarily stopped breathing, but luckily Ash uh, was able to take care of that and helped him get uh, get his breath back. Time slowed down in my head, and it felt like it was just me and him there. Everyone at work is calling me a hero now. I don't feel that way. I was just doing my job, he says. It proves why we have to be so careful. Training and health and safety is the first and foremost part of any coach's job. Deborah Hanford, Max's grandmother, praised the quick thinking of the young coach, saying what he did was absolutely unbelievable. So there you have it. Ash Goss, the hero of the day on the Matt Townsend Show, being there, being trained, being everything he needed to be to uh, to be there uh, to help a life. And that's what we try to do on this show is be there for you, give you the latest and greatest research and ideas to help you live longer, love stronger. That is the show. Until tomorrow, let's take care of each other and meet us again tomorrow, 9 to noon Eastern, right here on the Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio. Until then, make it a great one. We'll talk tomorrow.